here we are. We've we survived the typhoon. It turns out it, uh, for us anyway, it wasn't that big a deal, although I think some of the, uh, the southern islands got hit pretty bad. Well, I had some high winds here and uh, damaged a decorative fence that I have, but it was on its way out, and mm. it's only hastened my decision to replace it. That'll be a good fall project. So, But other than that, yeah, not too bad this time. It's really funny here because I live at the base of a mountain, so there's really no wind at all. It was just like rain, you know, but um, maybe it's something about being a mountain. Of course, you can get landslides, but this is sort of a, a hiking mountain, so I don't think there are too many of those. Oh, well, that's good. We do get flooding, though. There's a flood in the uh, streets near me like once every two years or so. You got to make sure it doesn't come in the house. Hmm. Well, it's uh, always an uh, adventure getting through summer here. It was really hot today, almost 100 degrees in the sun. I was out today. I thought it felt great. I was out for a while. <laughs> oh, no. It wasn't terribly humid, which was a relief. Um, yeah. But, uh, but I like I liked that kind of heat. I, I'm not a person who likes to wear layers of clothes in the winter, oh. you know, so I'm just all happy when it's hot out. As long as it's not, you can breathe, it's not humid and stuff like that. But, you yeah. know, I had to get in the shade. I was outside reading a book at uh, my local coffee shop. It was nice. They had a little shaded table outside. Did you bring any tunes with you? I did not. Oh. Um, today was a strictly a reading day. It's really funny. I've been reading a lot lately. Maybe oh. the podcast is uh, kind of overloading me and I need a day off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't want to have that kind of pleasure today. I think I need another kind of pleasure. <laughs> you know? All right. What a rough life. <laughs> we are listening to Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. We're on episode 128 this week, and well, the big adventure last week was the approaching typhoon, right. which now you know we're back. And, we're back. Uh, we're undamaged. Everything's good. Undamaged there. Mm. I'm your co-host, Russ, over here. This is Mike over here. And every week we bring you six recordings, three classical and three jazz, best of the new releases, and then we go through them, give you all the information you need to know to get a deeper appreciation of the music. We try to mix it up with music of all eras in the mm -hmm. classical end and from all countries, all instruments on the jazz end. And for all the music that we're going to talk about tonight, you can find links. Spotify, Apple Music is there in the episode description. Also at the top, you can find a link to the full episode playlist. That's all the music in one place on Deezer streaming. It comes from France CD Quality. They've got the podcast there too if you want to listen to everything in one place. Now, if you don't see that description or the recording links or list isn't so clear or active wherever you listen to us, you can always come over to our host site. That's podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. And everything's easy to follow there for this and all previous episodes. If you enjoy the podcast, Please follow us, subscribe wherever you listen. Tell a music-loving friend. We're always looking for new listeners. And if you take a moment to give us a ranking or write a short review, that helps us get listed in the recommendations. And it's another way we can get new listeners. Come over and follow us on our Facebook page as well. You can get extra info and more releases throughout the week. And you can leave a message or comment there. See our handsome faces. And if you want to get in touch directly, you can do so by email as well with any comments or questions. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Speaking of Facebook, thanks to Benjamin Miller, yeah. the pianist, for thanks, sharing Benjamin. our episode. That was a few weeks back, Pumped Up Pianos. Yeah. And uh, in that one, we discussed his recording, Feathers of Ma'at. It's a really yeah. adventurous listen, really good music. If you haven't heard that yet, go check that out. W with great liner notes, yeah. too. So you might want to pick up the CD for this one because it's yeah. worth it. 
We had fun uh, deciphering some of those esoteric <laughs> things that he seemed to enjoy. They were fun to kind of see. That's the that's one of the fun things about doing a podcast is you you read liner notes like this, and now you get to discuss them together. You yeah. know, like trying to figure out what's what he's saying, where this is coming from. It's really yeah. fun. And he seemed to enjoy our discussion of it. And he's going to send us a couple of CDs of the recording. So much that's, appreciated. That's awesome. Yeah, thanks, thanks a lot Benjamin, for that. And Benjamin. thanks for yeah. sharing the episode as well. And while we're talking about podcasts, we also want to remind you to check out The Same Difference, Two Jazz Fans, One Jazz Standard podcast. Johnny Valenzuela and Tony Habra look at several versions of The Same Jazz Standard each episode. It comes out every other week. And then they play little snippets from each version. They talk about the history of the original, look at the interesting different versions and what they like and don't like. And there'll be a link to their podcast in the description. If you stick around to the end of this program, you can hear their promo at the end. And the date is set for having those guys guest on our podcast. So we're going to record that in uh, about two weeks. And it's going to go out as one of our regular episodes get those guys on and I've picked some interesting versions of uh, good old American songbook tunes and Mike's got a classical recording he's going to throw their way and we're yeah. going to bounce ideas around and it should be a lot of fun. I've, I've never heard them because they talk about jazz on their podcast, right. Right? but I'm kind of wondering how this is going to hit them. I'm really looking, looking forward to talking to them about yeah. this. It's going to yeah. be a lot of fun. So we're going to record that in the week after next and it'll go up as a regular episode after the episode that follows this one. So you got that to look forward to. I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, it'll be fun. Yeah. It'll be something new. And in music news, I think we have uh, one. We, we have a death, I don't, a big death this week in classical yeah. music. This deserves a DSE day. So let's go. Okay. Let's get up to the piano here. Okay, the operatic uh, soprano Renata Scotto died, uh, Italian soprano, at 89 years old. She mm. lived a good long life. Now, if you grew up uh, in the same generation I did, you probably heard her sing with Pavarotti, with um, probably Jose Carreras too, but definitely Placido Domingo. And she mm. uh, was in best known for all the big Italian roles, Violetta in La Traviata, Gilda in Rigoletto. She was Madame Butterfly, uh, Mimi in La Boheme. And she was also occasionally Musetta in that same opera. Oh. And uh, she also did Lucia di Lammermoor and really a lot of others. It's a memorable voice, one of the great singers of the 20th century and of that era. So rest in peace, Ms. Scotto. All right, we've got some uh, interesting variety in classical music. Yeah, we do. Speaking of Italian, actually, this is all a, a pretty enjoyable list this week for everything. But we have one challenge in there, and we'll get to that later. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> which you'll know which one it is when you hear it. Anyway, the first. Um, I was speaking of Italians. I I love Italian Baroque music, the mm. early Italian Baroque, because the Baroque period started in Italy. They really kind of brought it in. It's also the era that introduced opera to the world. Opera really started in around the year sixteen hundred. Okay, right. with um. And I, I've even been to the building where it was invented in Florence. They, wow. Uh, you know, it's, um, you can even go there. Um, they used to have meetings discussing what ancient uh, Greek drama would be like. How could they hear their voices um, from far away outdoors in an amphitheater? Mm -hmm. And uh, the guys um, assumed that the words must have been chanted. And they just came up with this new sort of um, theater where musical theater where um, the words would be chanted, sung. And then we now have today what... Um, 
we, we all know what opera sounds like today. It didn't start that way anyway. Mm. But it's kind of lighter. And uh, whenever I hear music from this era, it always feels like um, you know, something new being born. And a lot of the best um, musicians can actually pick up that quality from it. I mean, you could just play through it and it'll just sound boring or like anything else. But uh, we have a great recording here. This is called uh, Fresco Baldi and the South. Now, Fres Girolamo Fresco Baldi, one of the, uh, the great... Uh, Italian names that anyone yeah. has ever had. <laughs> and he also happens to be a great composer from the early Baroque era. And uh, this album is um, by uh, Francesco Corti, which is another pretty great name, actually, on the harpsichord, um, Italian harpsichordist. And this is on the Arcana label. All right, this is going to take uh, the theme here. Really what this is is a, is a lot of a harpsichord works from the early Baroque when this uh, new kind of music was... Um, being born. It was um, in contrast to the Renaissance era, which was polyphonic. Now, this music became more, well, Baroque music was very polyphonic too. It introduced fugue and all sorts of things, but music was strictly polyphonic and uh, they had introduced kind of new styles of playing in the Baroque era. Okay, now the CD booklet notes are by several um, writers. One of them is by Andres Locatelli, who also uh, plays the recorder on track mm. 20. And he writes about um, composers traveling, uh, saying they travel to improve their professional and financial condition, and sometimes because of health, family concerns, or even issues with the law, he writes. So he agrees <laughs> with something I said on an earlier podcast. I would like to uh, remind the, the listeners, Italians will leave Italy because, A, they're looking for more money. That's why my family left. <laughs> Two- they're pursuing a woman, or three, they want to avoid being murdered because someone's trying is hunting <laughs> them down. <laughs> okay, so all three of those. I think those some are the combination, only. Yeah, <laughs> I think those are the only three reasons, or some combination of the yeah. two. Also, you know, they they made off with someone's woman and now want to avoid being murdered. That could happen too. Okay. Possible. Anyway, on this album, uh, Francesco Corti invites listeners to re-explore. The music of Girolamo Frescobaldi by measuring it against the musical universe of southern Italy. And I personally am so glad he did. I love these sort of um, variety uh, programs. Um, it might seem an odd juxtaposition because Frescobaldi was born in the north, in Ferrara, which is in Emilia-Romagna. Okay, not far from Bologna, if you know where that is. And Verona, which is way in the north, or Venice. It's, so it's kind of close mm. to those three. It's sort of in easy traveling distance. The connections uh, we hear bring to light certain stylistic and expressive similarities that only enrich our appreciation of the Frescobaldi canon. I actually think this is true. Um, when you hear like various composers mm. from the um, early Baroque era, you really get a sense of what was going on more. People doing different experiments. And certain things take, and you start hearing certain elements you know, again and again. And this uh, CD is actually a good um, exploration point for that. Okay, so Ferrara, which is um, Frescobaldi's uh, home city, uh, became a papal state in 1598, and this resulted in many other composers, Frescobaldi included, going to Rome because that was the seat of the, uh, you know, the uh, papal uh, states, and um, his musicians would want to go there to be in the center of things. Uh, he became the organist at St. Peter's in 1608. Have you ever oh, been wow. to St. Peter's? Yes. Yeah, I've never heard the organ played there, though, no. unfortunately, you know, which would be a great thing. I really wonder what it sounded like. That church is monstrous. Yeah. It's gigantic. I, 
and these days too, I mean, I was just there when the last time I was there was like eight years ago, nine years ago. And, um, now there's, there are crowds like online to get it. That never used to be the case because the mm. big doors would be open and you would just walk in. But now you have to go through like a metal detector and all yeah. this stuff. It's really yeah, horrible. It takes a while know? to get in there. So it's more touristy now and not as, well, it still functions as a church, but I mean, I've never heard the organ played there. I've never been to a mass there. I should really try to do that one, one time before I die. <laughs> anyway, the connection to Southern Italy came from uh, Carlo Gesualdo, who was from Lucania. Now, Lucania is a historical region uh, that's now made up of a lot of different Italian provinces. Um, but it's in the south, and that's kind of where the south comes from in this. Uh, Frescobaldi's works are all presented chronologically here, which is kind of interesting. Corti has made the backbone of the program a choice of representative works from the principal keyboard genres of the time. Toccata, Capriccio, Ricercare, and Partita. We will see these titles coming up all the time on this album. Similarities between Frescobaldi and Southern Italian composers include dissonance. I'll point that out when it comes. Some of it's really great. And asperities of harmony. Oh, I like the asperity of harmony, especially in Baroque music. And counterpoint, codified by Gesualdo and imitated throughout the century by other musicians. If you hear Gesualdo's um, sort of um, motets and his um, part writing, he gets a lot of really acerbic chords yeah, in yeah. there. Uh, we often think of classical music as a strict following of the score, but that wasn't necessarily the case at the beginning of the Baroque era. In fact, it really didn't become the case until after Beethoven. Uh, Frescobaldi wanted his interpreters to be free, but within strict limits. And I think we try to imitate this today, like really great musicians will try for that freedom within strict limits. Hmm. So the performer has to achieve a balance between spontaneity and adhering to the composer's wishes. And I think people try to do that today. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the case with the Francesco Corti on this recording. This really is a bit of a revelation. It turned out to be one of my favorite uh, albums of this genre. Anyway, we start out, track one, finally getting to the music. Uh, Girolamo Frescobaldi, Toccata Prima. This has a very free opening, and the uh, harmony of the piece at the beginning is laid out and explored. Now... When we hear these sorts of openings, I mean, you're hearing the opening chord, and then you're hearing like an approach to another chord. This wouldn't have been done in the Renaissance era when um, harmony was all based on like horizontal lines, like polyphonic uh, interweaving of lines. So this is sort of a new and exciting thing at the time. And today, if you listen to, if you ever heard Indian raga, like the alap part where the uh, solo instrument is kind of like bringing all the... Uh, notes he's going to use in his um, improvisation into into the piece or into our ears. Mm. You know, it kind, of, it kind of reminds me a little of that. But please, Indian listeners shouldn't think I'm saying that these early this <laughs> works like this and an, and an Indian raga are, are comparable or even related. They're totally not. I'm just kind of trying to make like a, give mm. you an idea, okay? Uh, the openings of these pieces uh, in this early Brook era feel to me like I'm hearing the musical work come into being, like in a lot. That's what I wanted to say. Some sparkle comes across as new harmonic frontiers are reached. At 2.14, a new section starts where I'm guessing we're headed back to the opening harmony. A touch technique is heard throughout with some rapid lines interspersed between approaches to cadences. It's pretty interesting. You hear all this harmony being laid out. There's this chord, there's this chord, and then all of a sudden the piece will just take off. For a while, like, oh, I'm in this mm. area. I'm going to start uh, really uh, showing some stuff. There's some surprising harmonies on the way to the cadences, but they're all subtly laid out in this piece. 
Okay, a composer whose music I've really come to like, uh, Giovanni de Mac. This first piece is Capriccio Sopra Re Fa Mi Sol. It's a contrapuntal elaboration of a cantus firmus. And I love uh, de Mac's bright rhythm and harmony. After the intro, we hear the counterpoint beginning at the 15 second mark. Corti gets a chiming sound on this track. And in fact, uh, we should mention, uh, he uses two harpsichords on this recording, uh, both by the same maker and both built in the uh, 2000s. So they're new mm. instruments. We'll hear this uh, 2005 instrument that we're hearing in this uh, track uh, by Philippe Humeau on tracks two through five. And the pitch on this album, we think of Baroque pitches as being lower. The pitch is A equals 440. This is a modern okay. pitch. So we're always hearing um, a modern pitch on these pieces on this recording. This particular track has some dazzle on it once we leave the contrapuntal opening behind. All clearly articulated by Conti on this wonderful sounding instrument and recording. It's a close mm. recording. I've mentioned before, the harpsichord is a very quiet instrument and we're never getting a realistic sound on it, But which is just as well. I mean, you could turn the volume way down if you want to try to simulate that. But um, I like the detail on harpsichord yeah. records when they're really close up. So this sounds great. Anyway, track three, Giovanni de Mac, Consonanze Stravaganti. Uh, this piece gets recorded a lot on programs like these. Uh, it's got a lot of space and starts with approaches to different chords. Again, notice some of the jarring harmonies, subtle as they are. This one at the 57 second mark and some broken up ones at 113 and afterwards. I almost kind of wish I could play these and just do it like Rick Beato does in his like videos when <laughs> he'll hear some cool substitution chord that he likes and I'll just go, oh, <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> I, should, I should do that. <laughs> But because it makes these kind of things make me do that in pieces like this. Uh, this piece goes into some odd harmonic places, which is what makes it so pleasing. Uh, it's the surprise of what you're hearing harmonically. Uh, Corti does achieve an admirable spontaneity in his performances. So the surprise of the harmony really registers. Okay, track four. I love this piece. Giovanni de Mac, Prima Galliarda. A galliard is a dance. And it was really popular in Naples um, at the time. There are a few dances on this recording, and they seem less harmonically ambiguous than other pieces, mostly because of the rhythm and the uh, identifiable melody that repeats. But they have rhythmic compactness, complexity, and harmonic density combined with the inflexible metrics of the dance forms. So I really love this particular one, and Corti really makes it dance lightly. The instrument sounds particularly beautiful on this track. I like Corti's restraint in the second section, which leads to the end. I have several uh, recordings of this particular piece. It's only a minute long. Uh, this one's my favorite one. Hmm. I remember the first time I ever heard this one was um, played by Rinaldo Alessandrini on a set of recordings on Opus 111 called um, 100 Years of Italian Music. And... They're not available anywhere anymore. I couldn't find them on streaming. Uh, it was three volumes, and the second volume was organ, mm. and the first, the first and third volume. The first volume was harpsichord, and the third volume was both. And I sold those recordings long ago. I wish I still had them. Yeah, I really liked them. Mm. I don't know why I got rid of them. I figured they'd be re-released or something, but they never were. Anyway, track five, Rocco Rodio, Terza Ricercata. All these things just mean his third Ricercata. Nothing in the notes... <laughs> tells us anything about this composer or piece. It starts slowly with octaves that soon separate into separate lines. It's a bit polyphonic and is rather stately. I love the separation of the voices Corti achieves in this performance. 
Uh, he seems to stagger the voices slightly. I've heard other harpsichordists do this too, so that when they reach a consonance, one is played almost imperceptibly before the other. Sometimes he plays them together, and sometimes there's a delay. Very artful playing, and it really makes it easy for the ear to follow the individual melodic lines. The ending of the work sort of drifts off without fully resolving. Track six, Girolamo Frescobaldi, our titular composer, is back finally, with Toccata Decima, and now we're back to the uh, 2007 harpsichord that we heard on track one. It starts out with a similar exploratory opening to track one, uh, but this one's more involved. It's pretty confident that it knows where it's going right from the beginning. Uh, listen to those dissonances, like the one at the 52nd mark and some passing ones in the line that follows. The exploration gets a bit more intimate and private sounding. At 205 with a slower quiet section, and it still gets a great passing dissonance there at 2.30. At uh, 3 minutes, we're back to full volume and virtuosity with the main line of figures buzzing like a bee, the left hand playing chords to give us the harmony, and this piece ends triumphantly. I bet the ladies really liked this one in their big hoop skirts or whatever they were wearing back then. Anyway, track 7, Scipione Stella, Partita sopra la Romanesca. So Romanesca was a pretty popular, uh, I think, set of chords that were improvised over at the time. I've heard um, other pieces by other composers with this same name. So they would people would often uh, do variations over it. And at this time, a partita, let's not think of the Bach partitas. Partita just means game. But in this case, um, the game is to vary, do variations over the repeating chords. So... Unlike in a pop song where the chords repeat and so do the, uh, <laughs> so do the <laughs> melodic lines, on these you have the chords repeating and the, uh, the ideas just keep the uh, invention going in the, uh, the melodic material. It's always going to be something new. The partita flourished in Naples with a particular vigor and originality as this piece exemplifies. Back to the 2005 instrument on this for tracks 7 through 9. This has a shy opening with the harpsichord lines heading to chords and almost giving a feeling of... Uh, is this chord okay with you? Okay, I'll go on from here, okay? That's like a pause, and you almost kind of feel like the guy's, the harpsichordist is looking at you saying, eh, eh, okay. Anyway, a melodic section follows. It's fairly slow and chimey sounding, very pretty. At the one minute mark, there's a new section featuring a repeating melodic pattern that's sequenced, turned upside down, and put through other melody stretching processes. We hear the chiming chord bass sequence again in the second minute, and then briefly a new pattern that brings us to the end. I like the way the harmony of the last chord always manages to sound like a surprise in these works. Like, uh, is this the end? <laughs> you don't really know. Uh, Corti holds it back at the end of this particular piece to tease us. I really liked his performance of this. Track 8, Francesco Lombardo, Toccata. This starts quietly and timidly testing out the harmony and building up confidence and flair as it goes. This is a pretty brief piece at 2 minutes and 8 seconds. And in that short period, the playing has become bold and bright. There's a really cool harmony at 2 minutes and 2 seconds right before the last chord. And it really stands out because it's before the last chord. Track 9, Francesco Lombardo, Gagliarda, which is another dance. Um, it's an appealing one, too, a galliard. Corti starts this without a pause from the previous track. It's lively, with some impressive virtuosity in the running lines. The rhythm stands out. Track 10, Girolamo Frescobaldi, Partita Sopra Ruggiero. Okay, so a partita in this era was a succession of variations on a bass line or harmonic pattern 
of wide popularity. So I think that's what it is. It has to be sort of a popular harmonic pattern or something that would be identifiable by people. It would be immediately recognizable to listeners at the time. Right. So it's it's not one of these more esoteric arty works that's for other musicians, which also exist in this period too. Okay, this is a long partita. Frescobaldi has a lot of variational ideas here and a lot of odd passing harmonies along the way that are really attractive. Uh, we're on the 2007 instrument again on this and we'll remain on it until track 18. There are short pauses between each variation and they all vary pretty dramatically from each other, either in dynamic, tempo, or harmonic space so that they're easy to separate when listening. And you want to notice the contrast which is part of the musical point of the work. Uh, they all sound carefully laid out and presented. And listen to the dissonance at 2 minutes and 18 seconds. I would say just lay back when you listen to this track. This is track 10. Let each variation sound drift over you and sit up when you're stunned by the dissonances. That's what I did. I should really <laughs> video myself listening to these. Like, because I'm sitting up in my chair sometimes like, what was that? I love those dissonances. I also like the sudden triplets variation right at the very end. That was a real surprise, too, because I didn't expect to hear triplets in this, uh, leading up to the last chord. Track 11, Frascobaldi again, Capriccio Sopra La Battaglia. This is a programmatic work, La Battaglia, meaning a battle, so we're uh, imitating a battle here. It's pretty short at 2 minutes and 5 seconds and boldly states its material, which includes rapid repeated notes and long rumbling bass trills. Uh, we can hear march-like themes and fanfares in the material, very warlike uh, material here. I think at around 110, you can hear Corti adjusting the mute on the instrument's harp, which is usually a wooden bar on these type of instruments. I think it's a one keyboard harpsichord, single manual, they would say. A big jarring dissonant chord at the end ends the piece. And you really like this one. This is your personal favorite, this right? This is one of the, my two favorite tracks, yeah. Oh, I wonder what the other one is. you got to tell me. We didn't talk about it yet, did Not we? Yet. Okay, good. They're both okay. Frescobaldi compositions, though. Okay, there's another Frescobaldi that I really love, too, but we'll get to that. Okay, number 12, track 12, Frescobaldi, Balletto, Chacona. A Chacon is also a set of variations over a, basically a repeating bass line. Could be chords, too. Brief at one minute long. Boy, it's a short Chacon. But it restores us to the peaceful, graceful world of civilization after La Battaglia. <laughs> Elegant after the previous piece. Nice bit of programming here by uh, Corti. He's got a little bit of a sense of humor as well. And a good sense of contrast. I track 13, Michelangelo Rossi, Toccata Prima. Rossi was a contemporary of Frescobaldi's, and this is a toccata that starts improvisatorially, improvisationally, I don't know, deciding to circle around a single chord arpeggio. It grows from there, heading into new harmonies. There are some great harmony-changing dissonances from 1 minute to 1.10 that act as a kind of train switch track for the music's direction. At 2 minutes, the uh, rhythm livens up and the music becomes dance-like and chirpy. Yeah, kind of those dissonances from 1 minute to mm. 1 minute and 10 seconds. Just, that, that's 10 seconds of music you have to hear. <laughs> track 13, if you're a fan of this era. Track 14, Frescobaldi, Gallarda Seconda. This is like another favorite of mine. I like this one a lot too. I like Galliards, I guess. This one immediately attracted me too. It's tight rhythmically without much harmonic complexity, though there's plenty of interest. It's only 43 seconds long. And I want to mention, I'm familiar with this piece from other recordings, and 
Corti, um, he phrases it a bit differently here than it is on those recordings. They're a little more accented. They're, you know, they're more, each chord is more heavily accented on the other recordings. And this was a little change from that. And I really appreciated that. I was happy to hear it a different way. Uh, track 15, Bernardo Storace, uh, Chacona, another Chacon. This piece, according to the notes, bears witness to the immediate and fertile reception of Frescobaldi's idioms on the part of the subsequent generations of Southern Italian composers in the second half of the 17th century. So Storace is the generation after Frescobaldi. This Chacona has a dotted rhythm, or it starts with a dotted rhythm opening for its chords, giving it a lively dancing feel. The dotted rhythm smooths out and becomes more song-like with harmonic layers adding interest. The piece sounds pretty busy, but is very appealing on the surface. It's also virtuosic, as you can hear at the beginning of the first minute. Mm. There's a rather dancing idea that continues throughout most of the piece, and a nice immediate shift from one rhythmic pattern to another somewhere around 343. I was um, so mesmerized by this that I forgot when I heard that <laughs> change. I was really, this really did take me away. So track 15, you can sample that too. Track 16, Michelangelo Rossi, Corrente Terza. Rossi was from Genoa and was a contemporary of Frescobaldi. This piece is included to offer a glimpse into the world of keyboard playing in Rome during the years in which Frescobaldi dominated the scene. This is a pretty chirpy, lively short piece. A corrente is a dance, as we know from uh, Bach's dance suites. Uh, this one sparkles with positive energy. Track 16, Michelangelo Rossi. Track 17, Frescobaldi again. Toccata nona, non senza fatiga si giunge al fine. Without getting tired, one arrives at the end. <laughs> this, is what it's this is the other one I really liked. You like this one too? Yeah. Okay. This one emulates procedures that can be traced from musicians in the kingdom of Naples like Giovanni Maria Trabacci and Ascanio Maione, neither of which is heard on this recording. But that's okay. The opening note is allowed to hang for a while. He just plays it <laughs> and it's just allowed to decay. Then the music proceeds, including a few slow, trill-like figures. At 42 seconds, we go directly into an odd key change, very pleasing to the ear. After the cadence, at the 59th second mark, the figuration speeds up suddenly. Then at 110, there's a triplet passage. Patterns follow quickly, each one different. There's a cool searching for a new key via some acerbic harmonies from 130 to 145. I love these long passages of those kind of harmonies. Mm. 15 seconds is a pretty long time when a new key is settled on at 145. Because of these new keys, the sound of the cadential chords always comes as a surprise. Because <laughs> you don't really realize that that's going to be the key yeah. that it's going to stop in. And then they end the, on that chord, and you're like, oh, I guess that's the key. There are even avoided cadences, such as the one at 304, which instead of resolving, immediately jumps to fast figuration. It's a 4-minute 33-second work that's full of local musical episodes. The last cadence comes via a racing trill, recalling the slow trills at the beginning. So what did you, what did you like, the variety about this? Cause yeah, that's just the drew me. variety, yeah. quick turns, bursts of expression, yeah. and uh, lots of complex interaction between the two hands is really cool. Yeah, track 17. Everybody check that out. Let's go to track 18, Frescobaldi again. Capriccio nonno. Sorry, Capriccio nono. Nonno is your grandfather. Nono means the ninth. <laughs> hmm. Capriccio nono di durezze, or of note lengths. 
Okay, duration. An extreme example of the exploitation of dissonances and asperities of harmony. So, of course, I liked it. <laughs> Here, Frescobaldi goes well beyond his Neapolitan colleagues in harmonic and melodic experimentation, which is fully in line with a term as fluid as capriccio. One last listen to the 2005 instrument is made on this track. The rest are going to be on the 2007 instrument. The piece's uh, name, Di Durezza, would seem to indicate the slow tempo and longer sustain of the individual tones. At 105, it sounds like Corti manages a different timbre, perhaps via use of a mute, but it's momentary. It highlights the dissonances. These asperities of harmony peek in every once in a while as the work moves towards its cadences. Track 19, Frescobaldi, Toccata, Settima. We're actually in the middle of a long string of Frescobaldi mm. compositions now. Track 19. This emulates procedures that can be traced from musicians in the Kingdom of Naples, like uh, Trabacci and Maione again. And we're on the 2007 instrument for the rest of the recording. This sounds comparatively bright on this particular track. The opening is exploratory, as we've heard in previous toccatas like the keyboard is searching for harmonic possibilities, then adding rhythmic patterns, as at the 52-second mark and afterwards, when he's found the harmonic approach to explore. Not only do the sound of cadences come as a surprise, but the harmony embarked on right after that usually makes one sit up as well. Uh, listen, at about 154, there's an avoided cadence straight into a dance-like rhythm at 219. By now, I'm starting to recognize Frescobaldi's techniques in building a piece of instrumental music, since we've heard so many of these pieces. Cirolamo Frescobaldi, track 20, Recercar, con obbligo di cantare la quinta parte senza toccarla. Okay, so there's a fifth part in this piece, and it's supposed to be sung. But in this case, we have Andres Locatelli playing that fifth part on the recorder. Now, there, I don't think there were words. I think the singer would have done a vocalese, and the recorder's okay. just playing its tones here. The title suggests that a vocal part uh, notated enigmatically be inserted by the performer. Uh, the piece starts quietly with the individual voices clearly heard when they enter. It's stately and the recorder is rather surprised if you're not expecting it. You don't have your booklet notes in front of you. He only appears momentarily initially, really throughout the piece. Only five note patterns. Sometimes they get longer. A cadence is reached at 122 and a new section begins. It seems the recorder is playing a recurring pattern as the polyphonic voices of the harpsichord go off in developmental directions. So despite the presence of the recorder, the harpsichord is the main mm. attraction here, harmonically. It turns out to be a pretty piece. The recorder's tone is deep and sounds like it's in the alto range. Track 21, Frescobaldi, Gagliarda Quinta. Very brief at 35 seconds, full of chiming charm, phrases are brief and lead to quick cadences. Track 22, Giovanni Salvatore, Canzone Francese Seconda, del Nono Tuono Naturale. Another piece that bears witness to the immediate and fertile reception of Frescobaldi's idioms on the part of the subsequent generations of Southern Italian composers in the second half of the 17th century. We almost go directly into this from the previous track. It's got some intellectual development of its popular theme, but remains appealing for its melody and rhythm. At 54 seconds, there's a cadence, then an odd approach to a new key that suddenly starts dancing at 1 minute and 14 seconds when reached. At 225, there's a cadence, then one more brief section before the ending 30 seconds later. There's a lot in this very short piece. 
And track 23, the granddaddy of all of these pieces, Frescobaldi, Cento Partite Sopra Passacagli. What this means is he's going to do a hundred variations on this one <laughs> sort of chord sequence. Now, needless to say, the chord sequence is pretty short. So, And he seems to group um, these um, variations into groups of 20 because there are pauses in this piece. It's about a 12-minute mm -hmm. piece, and um, there are pauses in it. And that, usually, that happens at around the time 20 of the variations are done. I didn't actually sit up and count them all. But um, there's a theme uh, over a set of chords. That's not necessarily the theme. The, th the thing that's uh, repeating are the chords, and that's the important part that the variations are coming from. So the first thing you hear is a variation. They keep coming. <laughs> there's going to be a hundred of them. Um, there's around nine a minute. There are nine variations a minute in this almost 12-minute piece. Mm. Um, you can hear the kaleidoscopic detail around that constant tonic chord. One round ends at 153, where there's a pause, and more lively variations continue. At 440, we have another pause after what may have been another set of 20 variations over the previous chord sequence, so there are chances to collect one's thoughts. Some of the variations are rhythmically interesting in their contrast with the previous one, in fact, the briefness of the chord pattern means that we're hearing constantly different material with each cycle, making this piece intriguing in its ideas, of which there are many. It's a creatively virtuosic uh, ending to a wonderful album. Uh, there's a third pause at the 8 minute and 8 second mark as Frescobaldi moves onto his next set of partitas. I like the spacious section in the 10th minute from around 10.40 on. After this piece, the CD ends. At 81 minutes, it's a very generous program, but if you're listening and streaming, there are two more tracks. Yeah. Oh, man. And I got to tell you, these two tracks, it's probably a good thing. They're, I mean, they're good, but I feel like that track 23, um, Cento Partita, is really the ideal ending to this album. I also want to say, I've heard other recordings of the Cento Partita, and this is easily the best one. Corti is very um, inventive in the way he plays, and he just makes each individual um, and rapid, uh, rapidly coming set of uh, variations um, stand out. Others, um, they get more of a like playing through the score sort of feeling. And when you have to hear 100 variations, that's a lot. Corti <laughs> uh, makes this come to life. This is a really excellent performance of that work. Let's talk about the two bonus tracks, though, only available digitally and streaming. Track 24 would be Luigi Rossi, Passacaglia del San Luigi, which I guess is Signor. Luigi. This brief two-minute, 19-second piece is melodic, is melodic and leads to quick cadences. It's another set of variations over a chord pattern. There's some nice yearning approaches to the cadence. I like the lightning of texture at the end and the approach to the final cadence from the bass. And then track 25, we get my favorite Galliard again, a Giovanni de Max Prima Gallarda, which we heard earlier in the program on track four. But this is, um, it says... Four, I don't know what this means, four apostrophe version. So it's something about the harpsichord. But anyway, it's played high up on the harpsichord. And it's got this soft bell-like tinkling sound up there. It's interesting to hear it this way. I obviously prefer it the other way. These last two tracks really do come across as bonus tracks tacked on to the main program. But they are great to hear. 
Okay, so I just want to say, harpsichord fans or Italian Baroque fans, this is really one of the best interpretations of this music that I've heard. The recording is close and satisfying, and that only helps the performances, which are all performed on beautiful-sounding instruments by a performer with a sensitive touch. I also like the idea behind the program, which made it hold together well. Corti is a really great player, making the rhythm of this music come alive and achieving a feeling of spontaneity in his playing, as though the works are being created as we listen, a quality that gives such life to these performances. I have to say, Corti is so spontaneous that he gives real life to the final track on the CD anyway, Cento Partite, Sopra Passacali by Frescobaldi a work that I've heard other harpsichordists uh, start chopping wood in, <laughs> which means <laughs> chopping wood be just playing through it without really interpreting it. You know. uh, fans of harpsichord of the late or the early Italian Baroque need not hesitate, but even if you're one of those nuts who doesn't like the sound of the harpsichord, and I don't know what's wrong with you if you don't, I suggest you overcome your aversion and listen to this. It's wonderful music making. I like this one a lot. The program is interesting with the contrasts of the different composers, but Frescobaldi is the standout, most interesting composer here, I think, and both of my favorite tracks are by him. But the other ones are interesting, and if you read the notes, it's kind of fun to think about you know, how ideas influenced each other by traveling, like you said, in this time period where you, know, you couldn't uh, easily hear music because uh, there were no recordings. You know, you would have to go hear performances right. and uh, be influenced that way. And so that said, you get a lot of uh, things to compare and look for similarities and differences in the styles. The playing is absolutely outstanding. As you say, Corti brings a freshness. It sounds like these works are just being composed as they're being played. You don't know what's going to happen next. And that kind of spontaneity and inventiveness comes through in his playing. Really great technique. And the album sounds really good. And so, yeah, I think if you like, especially music of this period, it has this kind of freshness to it. And uh, that really jumps out through his playing. So I, I had a good time listening to it. I made it all the way through all those 80 minutes in one shot. Yeah, it was really an easy listen. Hmm. And uh, it was just interesting all the way through. And you kind of get the feeling of that. It was an exciting time to be around, yeah. that things were really happening. And if you were in this milieu, yeah, you had to travel around quite a bit. All of this wasn't happening in one city, although there was plenty happening in individual hmm. cities to keep you busy. Yeah, we we often, I don't know, something about having the internet and uh, planes and things like that, we just kind of just assume the whole world is, has become one big global village, but mm. it, we forget that it wasn't like that in the past, you know? No, no. Anyway, so recordings like this really do remind us a bit of that. Anyway, second uh, recording, Poétique de l'Instant 2, or 2 in this case, by Quatuor Voce. <laughs> I just figured this out. This is a French... String quartet. I was kind of wondering how to pronounce voce. It's actually the Italian word for voice. Mm. But I was wondering because there's, there's no French word, V-O-C-E, but there is N-O-C-E, which is pronounced nos. So I was wondering mm. if they were doing something with that. But no. Okay. Quattro voce. Quattro voce are Sarah Diane and Cecile Rubin on the violins. They swap parts. I'll talk about that when they do it. Guillaume Becker on the viola, Lydia Shelley on the cello, and we also hear Juliette Urel on uh, the flute, Rémi Delangle on clarinet, and Emmanuel Cesson on the harp. And this is on the French Alpha label. They are based in France. Okay, now, we actually talked about Quator Voce's previous Poétique de l'Instant album, which had uh, the string quartet by Debussy 
coupled with works by uh, Balmer, a contemporary composer. Here we're going to have music, the Ravel string quartet and a few other of his works. And we're going to hear a, uh, a contemporary work by Bruno Mantovani, juxtaposed with those. So I guess this is going to be an ongoing project. Hmm. So the idea is to combine two pillars of the string quartet literature with other instruments, unpublished transcriptions, and first performances of new works. On the previous album, the, uh, the other instrument was a soprano voice, I believe. This time we just have only instruments. It sounds like an ideal program to me. Uh, it's what I generally look for because I like. I think it's easier to hear new works when they're kind of embedded with older works, you know, so that mm. you know you don't have to hear like well, or unless you want to go to an entire program of new works, which is okay too. I often program this podcast that way. I try to get like a contemporary composer in there with the older music. Right. So the first um, four tracks are Maurice Ravel's Immortal Quartet, String Quartet. Ah, what a beautiful work this is. I never get tired of hearing it. And uh, this performance is exceptionally beautifully performed and recorded, with a few rebalancings of the harmony in this, which I rather enjoyed. Okay, the first movement is marked Allegro Moderato, smooth, highly detailed opening, pastel chords on this very clear recording. I like the ghostly, wavering feel the voce give the opening chords. When we hear them again, certain voices are made to stand out, which is a first for me. Often they're kind of played sort of in harmony without any voices standing out. The gorgeous second theme, which is modal, and I love that, of course, starts at 153. Uh, the lead-up is sensitively taken. This is so far a gorgeous performance, which manages to highlight sonority despite having only string colors. I like the way the theme is brushed out of the violin at 2 minutes and 40 seconds. The sensitive accompaniment at 3.03 glitters in a way I'm not used to hearing from strings. At 4.33, we're back to the opening theme. Yeah, I want to mention, you generally follow the, uh, the melody, the main lines, but here my ear is often being drawn towards the gorgeous accompaniment and uh, the way the voce actually plays them too. I'm really loving that. Really, the subtle timbral coloring provided by both the score and ensemble enchanted me so much that I missed that we were in the development section here. I was hanging on every sound. I love the way the key change brightens dramatically at 7.15, a result of the pacing and dynamic. We get a foretaste of the third movement in the theme heard at 7.33. This movement is beautifully executed. Second movement, track two, assez vif, très rythmé. The opening is all pizzicato, and the rhythm is very straight, which is most effective for this. A detail in the second theme and its accompaniment at uh, 22 seconds is amazingly clear. My ear has never been as attracted to the accompaniment in this work as it is in this performance. And that's as much a salute to the engineer as it is to the performers. At 138, the quick double bowing on the theme is clearly executed and caught too. At 155, the more minor middle section begins, and the voce do well to darken their timbre to contrast this with the energetic opening. Again at 413, I love the plunking, almost banjo-like pizzicati from the cello in accompaniment to the morose theme above it. Energy starts stirring in the music at about 452, and we slowly make our way back to the opening A section of this movement, which is in full force and sounding even brighter by 520. Okay, uh, third movement, Trilante. This is so beautiful. It's a moody opening, beautifully judged. We're hearing a first-class performance of this work. At 108, I love the careful unraveling of each line in the polyphonic-sounding harmony. 
In fact, these instances are highlighted in the movement. Listen from the beginning of the second minute. At 325, we get a contrasting section, which comes across with a rather sinister feel here, um, one that I don't really remember hearing before. So I thought that was an interesting um, sort of quality that registered mm. to me. The cello projected most of the agitation and the rest of the quartet responding with tremors. Listen to the gorgeous combination of timbres at 425. Throughout the movement, and now I'm realizing the performance, rhythm, and accompaniment are brought slightly more into the foreground than usual in this performance. I think that's what I'm enjoying so much about it. Listen at 705 when a familiar theme is brought back and yet the accompanying melody in the violin is put in almost equal relationship with it, highlighting the magical harmony between the lines. A sensitively played movement. The fourth movement is marked vif et agité, and this starts explosively with full-on attack with the bows. It's beautifully balanced here. Uh, listen to the amazing crescendo starting at about 20 seconds in. I love the limpid dancing sound of the entire quartet at 120. It's momentary, the agitated cello bringing back the feel of the opening with the rest of the ensemble following. The melody at 3.53 comes up sounding exceptionally fresh, then a crescendo that suddenly decrescendos and builds to the final cadence. That's the end of the string quartet. It's beautifully realized here. Okay, tracks 5 through 9 are an arrangement of Ravel's piece for um, piano four hands, Ma Merlois, and which means Mother Goose. So they're sort of themes from Mother Goose. Now, Ravel had originally written this for two girls to play, and uh, two young girls to play and um, together. And the uh, transcription for a septet here was made by the harpist, Emmanuel Cesson, who plays on this album and this piece as well. Okay, now, Ravel also turned this into a, a ballet, and he added movements and extended all these pieces. But these are transcriptions of the five piano four hands pieces. The first one, Pavant de la Belle au Bois Dormant, which is the Sleeping Beauty, it is very pretty, having the flute and clarinet harmonized for the opening with the harp really written into the piano score, um, providing textured rhythmic points. The arrangement is appropriately fairy tale like Track 6, movement 2, Petit Pousset, which is Tom Thumb. We know the story as Tom Thumb. Uh, strings take the wandering opening. This is about he's getting lost in the woods here. You have these wandering lines with the flute providing the main melody once it comes in. The introduction of the clarinet timbre adds noticeable color to the harmony. I'm wondering if that's the clarinet providing the bird calls from 150 to uh, 2 minutes. It's hard to tell. It's good arranging. Creative effect by Saison here. I love the pizzicato emphasizing the closing chord of the end. The third movement, Les Doronettes, Imperatrice de Pagode. This has like a Chinese feel to mm. it. Uh, Les Doronettes, I don't think she has an actual story, but I think she appears in somebody's... Um, story. Later on that means little ugly one. <laughs> Empress of the pagodas. So she's got like a high ranking uh, position. This this particular movement I've always thought is magical in all of its guises. And if you hear it in the ballet, it pretty much the very last movement of this ends the ballet too. But this is at the end as well. Because it's just really great. The flute really brings out its oriental character. The handoff to the clarinet is seamless. The ensemble really goes for that muted pizzicato string rhythm, giving an eastern flavor to the work, which of course takes place in the east, and we have even pentatonic scales, which are all on all the black keys on a piano, playing the um, opening melody. I think that around uh, 1 minute and 10 seconds, that's the harp providing a percussive effect. The B section of the work is more subdued in tone, but the ensemble's enthusiasm can be felt. Tension is never allowed to slacken. 
The reintroduction of the pentatonic harmony on the distant harp is a beautiful piece of arranging. Fourth movement, track eight, Les Entretiens de la Belle et de la Bête. So conversations between the beauty and the beast. The beauty's theme is presented in the clarinet with a beautiful, well-outlined waltzing accompaniment. She is presented as gracefulness itself. And then, whoa, the clarinet at 110 reaches for some low notes, and I'm kind of wondering if it's a bass clarinet. That's what I thought, yeah. Yeah, for the beast, and the tone really resonates. It caught my ear, that's for sure. That's a beautiful beast, if you ask me. <laughs> Crisis is reached at 203, and then tapers off as both characters waltz the beast rather heavily in the clarinet. Nice characterization by the clarinetist for the beast throughout this work. Uh, at 2.52, there's another crisis, then a serene resolution at the three-minute mark, and the approach to the final chord is really a bit ominous, but all ends beautifully. And track five, Le Jardin Fierique. This isn't tied to any story. It's just uh, presented as a representation of a magical place where only children can enter. It means the fairy garden or the enchanted garden. Fierique is a beautiful word. Fierique, enchanted. The violin gets the theme at 125 with the harp and winds accompanying. The enchanting ending works well in this arrangement, but comes across more magically in the orchestral score, where it will really blow you away if you ever listen to that. <laughs> okay, that's a full ballet score. It's just really beautifully orchestrated. But this is really wonderful arranging by uh, Emmanuel Saison. Okay, now track 10 is the new work, Bruno Mantovani, born 1974. His string quartet number 5, nicknamed Creation Mondiale, or Creation, World Creation, I guess. He says this is a canon between the four instruments. I didn't really get that. I'm going to have to hear it again, mm. I guess. It starts on the note A, the first note of Ravel's quartet, and Mantovani also refers to the piece as a perpetual crossfade. I did get this or morphing if we were talking about visual arts. Now, let's not get confused. There's no studio crossfading happening here. The string quartet is moving from section to section as though it almost sounds like we're leaving one room and going into another, or maybe an engineer is kind of doing a crossfade in the studio, but here he's not. The idea of continuity comes from Ravel, who's constantly moving harmony, seems to create a perpetual metamorphosis. So the piece starts with a pizzicato in the violin, which reveals a sustained tone, which I'm going to guess is A. I don't have perfect pitch, sadly. Uh, there's sul ponticello rustling that comes in as an effect. The recording is very sensitive and picks up all of this up very clearly. There are a lot of extra violin sounds, uh, like tapping the strings with the bow. The sustained tone starts being rapidly bowed, breaking it up. Other strings come in with new lines, all fragmentary and repetitive. By 2.31, the entire quartet is contributing its own individual patterns and lines. The crossfade effect can be heard at around 2.50 and really at a lot of other places too. As the bowed patterns become pizzicato, then harsher bowed patterns again are heard after 3 minutes. Rapidly bowed repeated notes predominate at 4 minutes, leading to silence at 4.20. A new approach starts, a tone with a drooping ending featuring descending patterns, naclasando. Brief racing lines result from the next cross fade. This then morphs to something quieter with a light throbbing pulse that gradually speeds up, which in turn transforms. And it seems that we often come back to a wild, rapidly bowed set of repeated notes or short patterns. The quiet sound at 812 is pretty unique to my ears. Rapidly bowed patterns return, and the piece ends with a single rapidly bowed note that does a natural fade. 
Track 11, oh, one of the most beautiful pieces Maurice Ravel ever wrote, his introduction and allegro for flute, harp, clarinet, and string quartet. That's seven instruments. The tempo for the opening in this piece, which I love so much, is pretty fast. So right away, this isn't really my favorite recording of this work, but it's a good one. Stay with me. Uh, drawing attention more to the melody than to the luscious sounds that Ravel's orchestration provides. Um, yes, slower tempos for this opening really get you to luxuriate in Ravel's beautiful harmonies and timbres. Um, the harp is full-sounding and really registers when it plays its gorgeous glissandos. The accompaniment in the winds at 109 is special to me, and they're dispatched quickly here with consummate expertise. I like the breathiness I hear in slower recordings, but really there's nothing to complain about here. The Allegro starts at 146 with the glittering harp melody, one of the best-sounding harps I've ever heard in this piece. It really comes up well on the recording, and the uh, melody is beautifully taken by the harpist, Emmanuel Saison. He, he's really a, a star mm. on this recording. He, every, every time we hear him in the arrangements and in the, uh, his playing, he's just fantastic. The piece is now gliding along at a more moderate tempo. Unlike the earlier works, everything isn't registering as transparently here as it did in previous tracks. I'm missing some effects that I really enjoy in the accompaniment. They're too far back, but they provide texture here. There's some good detail in the clarinet at 6.03 that I don't remember hearing before in other performances. At 6.30, a solo section for the harp begins, and it leads into its harmonized melody solo at 7 minutes. The gossamer light glissando accompaniment provided by the harp at 7.43 and afterwards is absolutely magical and must be heard. This under a melody that's playing with harmonics. Such intriguing sounds Ravel was able to conjure. At 8.27, the main melody comes back in the harp with full accompaniment. I like the puffing flute and clarinet sound in this section from around 8.40, registering clearly here. Impressively played by the ensemble from 9.52 with all instruments registering clearly, even the flute trills at 10.12. It's as though the recording has suddenly cleared up at the end, and the ending is vividly caught and played. And that's the end of the album. So here we have an excellent interpretation of the string quartet, one of the better ones, and among the best recordings of it, so that we can hear the various bowing and pizzicato textures produced by the players as though they're up close to us. The arrangement of Mamertois was imaginative, keeping to the enchantment that this piece conjures. In this context, the Mantovani sounds really foreign, being that it's the only non-melodic piece on the album. But if you understand the idea of crossing from one sound pattern to another, as though walking from one room to another, where another quartet ensemble is playing, you could enjoy it. The introduction in Allegro is one of my favorite pieces, and this is a very good performance. The introduction was taken a bit fast for my liking. As I said, I like to luxuriate in Ravel's timbres and harmonies, and the sound of the entire ensemble playing together didn't completely open up until the last minute. But there's nothing to quibble about. The performance is still very good and well recorded. It's an excellent program and album, and I think it really needs to be heard, especially for the string quartet. I enjoyed all of the Ravel pieces. The string quartet was wonderful. I really like the string blend this ensemble gets, and it's really helped by the recording. You can hear everything really clearly, but it's not too close. It just seems incredibly detailed and well-balanced, uh, and the interpretation is really wonderful as well. Uh, once the woodwinds come in, uh, that's all the better. 
Ravel and French composers in general do woodwinds the best. The harp is a wonderful tone as well. And all the pieces are really, really enjoyable. And I, I love this music. And so I thought all the interpretations were good. The Montavani. Uh, <laughs> it's a know, little rough. Yeah. It's rough in this context. Maybe I'd like to check out some more of his music in a different setting. Yeah, I thought that's what I thought. I thought that was a little too uh, yeah. sort of an odd kind of choice to pair with all of this this music. Right. I understand yeah. the sort of uh, compositional relation, but <laughs> with all that sweet kind of uh, French pastry yeah. around it, it stuck out. It's a little uh, bitter in the middle there. But uh, yeah, it does break <laughs> up the program in an interesting way. So yeah, but we'll I check out some of think of it as like a typhoon now. in the middle of these uh, nice <laughs> yeah. sunny days we've been having. Right. Okay, so our last uh, classical work is by music by the recently deceased Kaya Sadiaho, Finnish composer. Um, and this is a uh, this just came out on Beast, and it was um, scheduled to come out before her her death um, about a month ago. Yeah, so we're just kind of lucky to have it, I guess, at this um, time. It's called the Reconnaissance, and it's performed by the Helsinki Chamber Choir, conducted by Nils Schweckendijk. And this is a beast recording, and it's an SACD, uh, if you're lucky enough to have the equipment that'll play that. Now, please, SACDs, let's remember, they play as CDs as well. At least any commercially available classical recording will, if you're buying it from a like mm. Amazon or a shop. There are specialist SACDs that won't play on a CD player, but that's not going to be the case for anything we ever talk about on this podcast. Okay, so this is a collection of Sadioho's choral works. Now... She's, she was Finnish, but she spent her life in France, and she really composes a lot like a French composer in that, in my opinion at least, the sounds she conjures. I think she works a lot with the sounds and the relationship of sounds, like two timbres together, will make, and that's where the character of her music is heard. And we're going to get that also in these um, choral works as well. Now, they're a little. some of them are a little odd and really very um, adventurous, I think. Well, not adventurous, but inventive, I want to say, inventive. Okay, tracks one through eight is a work called Nuit Adieu, composed in 1991 for four singers and electronics. <laughs> I know there are some people, when they hear the word electronics in classical music, they think you have the mid-20th century and they just go running for the door. Uh, don't do that here. Although maybe some of you will want to. <laughs> anyway, the texts are by Jacques Roubault and Honoré de Balzac, the French writer. The singers on this uh, track are Linnea Sundfer Casserly. Uh, you know, forgive me if I mispronounce any of these. Uh, soprano, Ellerin Muripil, alto, Martin Antila, tenor, Sampo Hapanyami, bass, and Timo Kirkikangas, uh, live electronics. Sadioho describes this as a work about singing, breathing, whispering, nighttime farewells. So if you're someone who enjoys the sound of the voice, singing, breathing, whispering, this is a piece for you because that's what you're going to hear. <laughs> <laughs> the movements labeled Nuit come from Jacques Roubault's book Échange de la Lumière, if you want to look them up, while the ones labeled Adieu have text from Balzac's novel Serafita. The voices are amplified and processed during the performance. Each singer uses two microphones. One microphone is used for amplification, and its signal is sent to various processing programs that alter the sound, like early reflection, gated reverb, 
and delay. Okay, so if you're somebody who works in a recording studio and you know what these are, you're going to want to hear this piece, right? Because you're going to want to hear what all this is going to sound like <laughs> when she uh, puts it through these things. The most dominant processing affects the material sung into the second microphone. Here, reverberation is used. The reverb time is controlled by the dynamic changes of the voices. So I was reading this. I thought, this is going to be fascinating. You know, I thought this was really intriguing (laughs) when I heard it described. In general, the reverb time is set to be relatively long, and the audible result is a continuously changing texture, which forms a background for the music that is sung into the first microphone. The slowly changing background is like memories flowing in our minds, then allowing space for new ones. So you can kind of think of it as you're thinking a thought, and then in the back of your mind, there's all this other stuff going on that you're not paying attention to, but you're kind of aware of it. And that's kind of how this piece is going to work, if you can kind of imagine that happening in your mind. She's trying to make that sort of, uh, you know, bring it into um, audio form. The night movements are united by descriptive, slightly more dynamic music and have solo passages from each of the four singers. The farewells are always calm, like a lullaby. (laughs) I think I'd question that. (laughs) Um, I don't know that I'd play any of these for my child. (laughs) Anyway, Anyway, Sadioho says that in a way the whole song is a lullaby, not so much for a sleeping child as for an elderly person sleeping out of our world. That's pretty interesting. She's certainly got interesting ideas. Let's mm. just say that. I've really enjoyed her descriptions of her music and what she kind of wanted to attain with it. Anyway, this goes into eight movements. The first one is Nuit One. And one of the things I notice about this piece right away is that Sadia Ho relishes the sounds of the French words and makes her setting isolate some of their consonant sounds as well as the very musical vowels. There's a lot of shing, sh. Yeah. It's an mm. interesting and very haunting movement. I like the background shing consonant sounds. Now, if you're American and you like, most Americans love the sound of the French language. It's very soft. It's got kind of soft consonants. They're kind of gentle. I mean, I think you would uh, like this. She obviously really enjoys um, the sound of them. Track two, Adieu Un, or One. I'll use English, One. The movements are unseparated, and we hear these words murmured under a soprano voice that's singing melismatically in a mid-range. Could be an alto voice. The texts are presented separately in the booklet, not track by track, so you have to be looking back and forth to follow, which isn't really very difficult to do. Track three, Nuit Two. The depths of outer space sound continues here, with a soprano up front singing the text. Track four, Adieu to male voices take over the background here while a lower woman's voice intones an ah sound as background voices articulate the text. Track five, Nuit three, here a tenor voice comes up front and a bass voice soon comes in as well. The tenor has the lead over a shing or shushing accompaniment. Track six, Nuit four, the ensemble all makes panting sounds which are projected back into the electronics. I actually like this, this particular movement. It's all actually pretty cool without being particularly pretentious. And that's pretty much a miracle because when you're working with um, ideas like this, <laughs> the work can sound pretty pretentious. <laughs> but I don't think it does here. I think she really has, like the whole concept kind of holds together and it avoids pretentiousness. At the 32 second mark, there's a scream that the background electronics pick up <laughs> and send far away. No actual text that I can make out here, 
This is atmospheric, interesting, and disturbing, and it's piercing soprano cries. Now, what's interesting about the big soprano cry is the uh, the way it's just sent into the ends of the universe by the electronics. I really liked that. Nuit 5, this is track 7. The bass is heard here, singing, or more accurately intoning the text. So each of the uh, four solo vocalists has gotten a movement to themselves. They each got a chance to solo by themselves. And uh, track eight, adieu three through five. The bass continues here with the word adieu, which is then picked up by all four singers and sustained by the background electronics. I do like the sound. At the end of this longest of the brief movements, the sound fades. Track nine is an individual work, orloge tais-toi, which means clock shut up. <laughs> it's written in 2005 and it's for female choir and piano. The text is by uh, Sariojo's son, Alexi Barrier, uh, and uh, Anna Kuvaya is playing the uh, piano on this. Barrier, the lyricist, was 15 years old when he wrote the text for this piece, <laughs> which is kind of unbelievable when you kind of uh, realize what it's about. Sariojo's daughter, Alisa, sang in Didier's uh, Soutan's polyphonic choir, which is a children's choir at the Conservatoire du Centre in Paris as a child in Paris. And Sadiaho promised to write a piece for the choir's spring concert in 2006. The lyrics include some onomatopoeia, and the text is funny and serious at the same time, and actually really dark, which is shocking for a 15-year-old. <laughs> a lot of it's untranslatable because it deals with onomatopoeic sounds. There's a lot of wordplay associated with the ticking of a clock. There's also a later version of this piece for choir and small orchestra that we're not going to hear here. Anyway, the choral opening features some clock-like tick-tock mouth sounds from the choir. The lyrics are about how the passing of time annoys the singers because it reminds them that time is passing and that they'll one day pass away or die. It's a 15-year-old kid writing these <laughs> lyrics. I'm reminded of my impending death when I'm 15 years old. Oh, man. Anyway, the music itself rides the razor's edge of being playful and serious. I guess this would be what Sadioho considers a fun piece. Um, it didn't come across as particularly fun to me. <laughs> anyway, a section near the end ends ominously with crashing clock rhythm sounds in the piano, after which is a brief comment from the choir to bring the piece to an end. Now, I said it doesn't sound fun to me, but it is very interesting. I was kind of intrigued by it. Okay, tracks 10 through 12 called Echo, composed in 2007 for eight voices and electronics. The text is by Alexi Barriere. This is Sariojo's son again. And this one was uh, composed when he was 17, I guess. <laughs> and this is about a Greek myth. Boy, this kid must be really smart. I don't know. He's older now, though. But anyway, the singers are Linnea Sundfer, Casserly Soprano, Julia Hieger, Soprano, Ellerine Muripil, alto, David Haxton, countertenor, Mats Linhanus, tenor, Marti Antila, tenor, Sampo Hapaniemi, bass, Yussi Linanmaki, bass, and Timo Kurkikangas, live electronics. The starting point of this piece, musically, was a double choir motet by Renaissance-era composer Claude Lejeune called Que Celebrat Thermas, Echo Decem Vocum. The text is an interpretation of the myth of Echo and Narcissus. And the idea of Echo was extended with electronics, of course, so we're going to hear a lot of Echo effects. Recorded voices that are processed and reverbed, delays and resonant filters prolong the musical textures created by the eight singers. 
The piece was written as a tribute to Olivier Messiaen, but the music to here doesn't have much, if anything, to do with Messiaen's methods. Echo and Narcissus is a complicated story. It comes from Ovid's Metamorphosis. First, Echo is admired for her magnificent voice, but after playing a trick on Juno, uh, Juno curses Echo by making her able to only finish a sentence not started and unable to say anything on her own. So she becomes an Echo. (laughs) (laughs) Later, she falls in love with Narcissus and tries to draw him to her, but can only repeat the end of sentences he says to her. Uh, She managed to run towards him, but he rejects her, and her nymph friends pray to Nemesis to punish Narcissus (laughs) with a love that is equally not reciprocated. Nemesis causes him to fall in love with his own reflection in a pool of water, and he wastes away and eventually dies, unable to take his eyes away from the beautiful boy that he sees in the pool, not recognizing it as a reflection of himself. So we have two very sad characters Mm. in this story. Anyway, the first movement is marked Dolce Energico. Here, Echo plays and starts pursuing Narcissus. There are some cool effects before we hear any electronics in this piece. I like the whispering and the wind sounds the vocalists make between lines as well. Electronic effects here are subtle and only audible when the vocal lines end. Uh, The second movement, this is track number 11, Calmo Espressivo. Here, Echo pursues Narcissus. There are composed Echo effects, something I've loved since the Baroque era. Here, the electronics come in more strongly. Harmony is pretty straightforward, and there are some very cool-sounding acerbic chords in the harmony. Track 12, movement 3, Libero Intenso. Narcissus is cursed. The beginning builds from whispers to full voice. We hear Narcissus's words in the solo countertenor voice. The printed text in the booklet for all three movements uses three columns to help the listener distinguish between the chorus and the individual character's words. Echoes echoing words being on the far right. I thought this piece was atmospheric and comes across as rather tragic and sad, which the story is. Gorgeous muted final harmony on the word echo. Tracks 13 through 16 is a work called Tag de Jahr, which is German for Day of Years. This is for a soprano, alto, tenor, bass, chorus, and electronics. Text is by Friedrich Hudelin, and uh, Timo Kirkinkangas provides the electronics. For this piece, Sadioho explains that the poet Hudelin had a mental disorder toward the end of his life that made him claim that the poems Sadioho sets here were written on different dates in other decades, even in other centuries from the time in which he lived. He signed these poems using the name Scardinelli. After, and this is in quotation marks, someone very dear to Sadioho, the piece is dedicated to her mother, so I'm guessing it's her mother, but she doesn't say. She just says someone very dear to her suffered a cerebral hemorrhage and communication with this person acquired a new logic or lack of logic because she no longer had any sense of time or place. Sadiho acquired a new insight into these poems by talking with this person. They are visions of lived moments that pass in the twinkling of an eye and then vanish or are transformed into new intense moments. We can already imagine from that description what this music will sound like. Sadiho's music plays on this momentary principle frequently. However, she says that the text begged to be given an archaic choral treatment. Because the poem speaks so much of nature, Sadiho wanted to expand the sound world in the direction of nature, so in the electronics we hear birds, the wind, and other nature sounds. Okay, the first movement, track 13, is called Der Frühling, the spring. Atmospheric percussive electronic sounds open the piece. 
Sadio claims this has an archaic musical setting, but to be honest, the harmony of the voices reminds me more of Ligeti than of anything <laughs> pre-Baroque. Now, the harmony is too contemporary. Uh, the te- n- that's, not a, that's not a criticism. It's just very contemporary. The text itself is beautiful and inspired, and the music manages to isolate those images. So otherworldly is it. The second movement, Der Sommer, summertime, uh, very cool electronics are heard at the beginning of this piece. I wish I knew what this technique is called. I've heard it used on voices before. The women's choir sounds very traditional here, even via the harmony, and the text is basically a description of nature until in the last line it becomes metaphysical. Basically, this is a straightforward choral setting with traditional harmony with added strangeness from the very present electronics. The lower voices of the chorus get into some odd harmony at 331. I feel like the odd electronic effects highlight the presence of the last line of text throughout the piece. The image of the distant may be apparent at such times as men find their way to its meaning. (laughs) That's the last line. Um, I would isolate that and maybe listen to it uh, several times. (laughs) It took me a long time to figure out what that sentence meant. Uh, The third movement, the Erbst, the autumn, has an almost Asian repeating cymbal sound opening the piece. Again, the choral writing is straightforward, but there's an electronically amplified and distorted male voice in the left channel narrating text adding a bit of strangeness. Track four, Der Winter, or Winter. This movement continues on from the last without a break. The opening is sung by a single woman's voice or layering of soprano voices in unison. I'm not not sure which. There are swooping electronic effects and a short glissando at the end of the woman's lines. The sung line is a single repeated note until the glissando. This changes with the third line of text. There's a whispering, electronically altered male voice all in all, this movement is muted as though under a layer of snow. Track 17, Überzeugung, which means conviction or belief in something. This is written in 2001 for three female voices, Crotales, Violin, and Cello. Uh, crotales, by the way, are little tiny symbols on a rack. The text is by Hörlin again, and the singers are Kerry Kalio, Emma Suzko, and Era Carlson. Also, we hear the Usinta Ensemble. We don't get much information about this piece from Sarioho herself. There are no electronics here, just acoustic instruments. The piece is short and almost three minutes. It starts with an open fifth pizzicato in the cello and a violin line that rather winds its way upward, whining like, uh, <laughs> not winds, <laughs> it whines. Like, uh, I'm whining. The female voices sing in a rather traditional way. The instruments are all atmospherically used, providing timing and an environment for the voices. It's a quiet piece. The string instruments are played without vibrato. In fact, the cello isn't bowed at all. It just plays pizzicato chords, marking the beginning of measures. It's a thoughtful, meditative piece. Tracks 18 through 23. This is the uh, title work, Reconnaissance, written in 2020 for a soprano alto tenor bass chorus, Percussion and double bass. And the text is by Sadio Hosan Alexi Barrier, again, who now is in his 20s, I guess. He might be in his 30s by this point. And the Usinta Ensemble is heard here. Sadio Ho calls this a science fiction major goal. Let that sink in. A science <laughs> fiction major goal. Anybody out there like science fiction? This does have that kind of text to it. These two genres, science fiction and magical, share a deep existential affinity. I do agree with this, by the way. 
Like science fiction, choral music articulates individual voices and collective fate. Humankind is treated as a character expressing itself in unison and in fragmented voices, in opposing grounds and as isolated individuals. You'd think that there would be electronics in a science fiction-inspired work, but there aren't in this one. It's just percussion <laughs> and double bass along with the chorus. The title Reconnaissance was chosen because it contains two contradictory ideas. In English, it means heroic military exploration of the unknown, and in French, it means something that refutes the idea of unknown, the rediscovery of what we already knew, perhaps our own eerie mirror image, according to Sadia Holm. I'd say that last statement is something to keep in mind when listening to the music in this piece. The first movement, track 18, is called The First Martian in a Long Time. This starts atmospherically with the bowed bass and vocal sounds and gongs. The men's voices sounding a bit like those Tibetan monks' deep-throated chanting. The text is English and is sung in a fairly eerie but straightforward way. The text here is an observer's description of what he sees on Mars. Second movement, Countdown. Um, this is track 19. The countdown is in multiple languages, English, French, Russian, Chinese, and Arabic, and is pretty chaotic. There's lots of banging percussion. There's also a section with juxtaposed ideas, a lot of them advertisement slogans. This is a pretty loud movement and comes across <laughs> as the voices of the earth, all clashing individually. At the end, they come together in an upward harmonious, eerie glissando. It's got a pretty cool ending, this movement. Track 20, movement 3, is an in... I'm sorry, this isn't movement 3. This is an interlude, and the uh, singers are Linnea, Linnea Sundfer Casserly, soprano, and Riku Laurica, bass. The section is subtitled Intercepted Radio Transmission, Solaris. Solaris recalling the Polish novel, and especially the Russian film, by Tarkovsky, I guess due to the Russian text used here which I believe is repeated in spoken English as though it's a translation. I didn't check that, though. It's like aliens are speaking Russian, and an English translator is stating in English what they're saying. Or is saying something different. Again, I didn't check this. Uh, the Russian is all sung by men's deep voices. Now, I'm assuming that um, the Russian is translated to English because we're not getting a translation of the Russian in the booklet mm -hmm. otherwise. Uh, the English is stated by a woman's voice. The Russian is sung and the English is only spoken. I have to say the bass is used creatively throughout this piece. Finally, we get movement three. This is track 21, Greenhouse. This starts a little more traditionally, chorally speaking. There are percussive wind sounds accompanying and other percussion. The text talks about moving the global warming of the Earth to Mars in order to make Mars livable. The singing gets pretty agitated as the movement goes on and dynamically loud. By the middle, there are glissandoing vocal sounds and a pause at around 340. The fourth movement, track 22, Desert People. The text mentions the Hopi people, and the percussion features sleigh bell sounds shaken as in a traditional dance. The text talks about how they know worlds are killed and reborn. The core writing is mostly traditional, with a few swirling glissandos coming in at times. And the final fifth movement, track 23, is Requiem. This is a prayer that starts with only the chorus. It starts traditionally, but soon sustained vocal sounds give an eerie, spacey feel. The bass is used in creative ways to give otherworldly sounds that might be otherwise provided by electronics. The text is a prayer in English, with some traditional Latin text from the Latin Requiem Mass, 
It seems at the end the Earth has returned to parched wilderness, and Mars begins that way. They are the same. Mars, however, has been warmed, and people now live there. The eerie sustained voice choral effects are what drew my ear in this movement on the occasions that came in. Great sound here, and great technique from the chorus. The harmonies in choral singing starts to drift to more modern intervals near the end. This piece is a rough listen on the surface, but if you put your mind in science fiction mode, it really can seem that you're living through a dystopian yet hopeful movie. Um, intriguing sounds are heard throughout. And the last piece on the album, tracks 24 through 31, is a repeat of the first piece, Nuit Adieu, but this is the a cappella version with no electronics. It was arranged in 1996. Here, um... The singers are Linnea Sundfer Casserly, soprano, Ellerine Muripil, alto, Marti Antila, tenor, and Sampo Hapaniemi, bass. In this version, the uh, material that was originally provided by the electronics is reimagined for an eight part choir accompanying the four soloists. The solo parts are nearly identical with the original version, but the material is in general expanded and enriched. Okay. Movement one, Nuit one, without the electronics, the writing, very perceptibly, takes on more of a feeling of purity, the individual voices sounding naked. We still get the swishing mouth sounds providing atmosphere. The choral writing comes across as having a more religious quality when heard this way. It sort of makes me want to go back and compare the two versions. Second movement, Adieu one, no pause. There's a more intimate feel to this version that listeners may prefer. The words to the adieu text come across more clearly, even in the bass end. I do like the clarity of the choral harmony here, as we heard, without the electronics. Nuit 2, this is the third movement. We can hear the text more clearly. This is the Nuit 2 est venu la lumière en poussé sur l'herbe part, if you're following along with the text. I had said that the text is presented in the booklet as two sections, but here it comes together more. The fourth movement, Adieu 2, atmospheric vowel sounds from the choirs as female voice speaks the Adieu text underneath. At 110, there's a cool crescendo on spoken words. Nuit 3, the words that start with Don Lerb Satash in a tenor voice as well as the soloist's intone, long vowel sounds. Movement 6, Nuit 4, panting sounds at the beginning, having a percussive rhythm. The text is whispered. I'm pretty intrigued by the masked sound of whispering presented here. There are some cool swooping vocal glissandos like shooting stars from high up in the frequency range. I actually like the way this comes across without the electronics, although I did like the electronic version too. Movement 7, Nuit 5. The text here is the part starting Nuit, c'est la chevelure de noir, if you're following along in the booklet. The final part given in the booklet under Rubo's name. The bass has the lead here, and he's got a rich, deep voice. Uh, which comes across exceptionally well without the electronics here. And the final eighth movement, adieu three to five, wavering, sometimes glissandoing pitches provide harmony as the soloist intone the word adieu. At two minutes, the sound is reduced to a singy-shing voice, which fades naturally, ending the piece and the album. And my commentary. I've went on for a long time tonight, but there was a lot to unpack. On these albums. <laughs> okay, so let me just say about this album, it's pretty arty and won't be for everyone. It's not terribly adventurous, though, and I found it stimulating. Now, I don't mean that as a criticism. I mean it as, you know, don't be afraid of the big bad wolf. You can, you can wrap your ears around this. It's possible. I thought this was a stimulating 
album. It doesn't attack the ear in any unpleasant way, except on occasion when a dramatic musical point is being made. What I like the most about Sadia Ho is the way she thinks. She'll often be inspired by a poem, a book, a sound, a situation, and then write a composition around it. I think in much the same way, and uh, that draws me to her music. I have an entry point. There's a lot of material on this album, and it's pretty long at 81 minutes. Uh, my favorite works were the ones that involved electronics. Uh, I just thought they sounded intriguing. The opening Nuit Adieu and the Greek mythology-based Echo, as I found both use the electronics creatively. I think Sadia Ho has a genuine affinity with electronic sounds as they relate to her works. It's a real part of her compositional voice. I'd say, however, that the standout work was the title work, Reconnaissance, it tries to, and I believe it succeeds, in making a big statement, but you'll have to put on your science fiction fan ears to get the most out of it. It's an ambitious work, and very impressive, really, although I personally didn't take to it. I was impressed, though, by its scope and approach. Ooh, this is a tough one for me to get yeah. through. I, I did not listen to this in one listen. This yeah, took a few days. I'd <laughs> recommend breaking it up to each yeah. work separately. She seems to have her own unique kind of harmonic language mm. that has its own patterns that you get used to. And I'd say if you're a choral works person, she's not only very much focused on the use of the voice as an instrument, but also I think what speech can do. So the vocalized sounds and things have an interesting role, as well as the use of the voice as sort of a tone so that was kind of interesting. If you like electronics, I mean, it's interesting to have that used with voice or in classical music in general, you know, it's sort of uh, on the edge with that type of thing. So the spatial aspects with the reverb and the amplification create some interesting effects. And then you have the unamplified and without effects version you can compare it to and uh, see how those compare. So that, that may be of interest to some people. An interesting composer with, uh, I'd say, adventurous ideas. Was your wife around when you heard this? No, no. You had forewarned me about that one. So. <laughs> <laughs> this was headphones for me, yeah. I want to keep the marriage going there, you know. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to keep everyone's marriages going. And, oh, yeah. Uh, I think I've got a program that'll even make grandma happy this week in jazz okay and this is uh easy breezy music that we're gonna have uh tonight and i say that not that it's light music but you know just like classical jazz music there's all kinds of combinations of material and rhythms and harmonies and you know sometimes we get into some denser things in general i'm not a fan of the avant-garde you can get out there but first you got to give me some uh, melody and uh, hopefully, you know, some kind of structure that you're going to jump from. And so I usually don't pick recordings that are way out there. But we do get some pretty exciting, adventurous things. But this week, all these recordings are going to put you in good grooves, wonderful melodies. And I think you can put this program on when anyone's around and everyone will have a good time. And that's going to start right away with this first recording by a pianist we really like, Joe Alterman. And this is a special album, really. Joe Altman plays Les McCann, the great jazz pianist, uh, Big Mo and Little Joe. And Joe Altman's released this under his own name here. It just came out August 11th. 
And let's see, we've heard Joe Alterman before. Uh, the Upside of Down, live at Birdland on Ropadope Records. That was back in episode 32. That was called Trios of Trios and Visionaries, and it made our best of 2021 list and in the end of year episode. Yeah, and in fact, you said that that album was, and this, this uh, pianist was going to unite America again. Yeah. Do you, do you still stand by that? You I think still it's, stand by that. Yeah, That's right. He's, People have to hear this. <laughs> you have to hear Joe Alterman. The, the country is waiting to uh, come together again. That's you right. You hear Joe Alterman. And this is, as I say, a kind of uh, dedication and collaboration with Les McCann. It would be Leslie Coleman McCann, who's born in 1935. Interestingly, I didn't know, looking up, you know, I knew his music. There's a lot of really great bluesy and funky piano music in different sort of periods where he got into different styles. But when he was in the Navy, he won a singing contest, which led to being on the Ed Sullivan show. Wow. And he did sing, you know, occasionally on his records too. After he got out of the Navy, he went out to the West Coast and he had his own trio. And he actually turned down an offer to work with Cannonball Adderley's band so he could work on his own thing. Then on one of my favorite recordings of his is uh, with... Lou Rawls, you know, the singer who would go, go on to be, you know, a, a great pop singer. And when we grew up, you know, Generation mm -hmm. X, you, you know, Lou Rawls was always on, you know, you'll never find yeah. another love like mine. You, yeah, know. you actually kind of sound like him. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Yeah, He's got that golden go. baritone voice. But if you go right back to that debut with Les McCann, it's called Stormy Monday, yeah, 1962, Capitol Records. This is a really good R&B blues and gospel, kind of all acoustic with that trio. It's it's great. I listen to that all the time. If you haven't never heard that, go back and listen to that. Anyway, when uh, Joe Alterman met Les McCann, according to the notes here, uh, Les McCann didn't bother to formally greet him. Uh, he became disabled. He's in a, a wheelchair uh, these days. But he just went up to Joe Alterman when he was uh, doing his sound check at the Blue Note, and he said, play me some blues, boy. Joe <laughs> <And laughs> Alterman did. His reaction was, amen. So apparently he liked it. And they became friends uh, ever since that, I guess for more than uh, a decade now. And apparently they uh, talk to each other all the time. And so I thought this is a really wonderful dedication to the music of Les McCann. We're going to hear some good stuff here. And we've got uh, Joe Alterman's regular trio, him on piano, Kevin Smith on bass, and Justin Cheserek on drums. And all the compositions except the final one are by Les McCann. Joe Alterman also produces this. And let's see, well, we'll jump right in. I'll give you a little background. The notes give the genesis of most of the tunes and the other ones I looked up a little bit. Starting on with track one, Gone On and Get That Church. This was uh, 1960. Les McCann Limited in San Francisco. It's a gospel-y 12-bar blues, and Alterman starts it out with a solo chorus, and you'll be infected with the rhythm right away. Yeah, There's I not was. much to the alternating note melody. It's just all about the feel. There's a nice break for anticipation, and then bass and drums are in for another run through the melody, and then Alterman's off playing the blues. Cool triplet figures, bouncy rhythms, lots of rollicking two-handed fun. Kevin Smith gets a bass solo too, keeping the beat steady with little fills from Alterman. They take it two more times around the melody to wrap it up. He should be smiling already from the first track. Track two, Someday We'll Meet Again. This is from 
1974 album, Another Beginning. This one builds up from a repeated eight-measure funky syncopated left-hand line, first solo on piano, then with drum clicks and tom fills on the drums, and then the bass joins in. Alterman adds some cool filling figures with his right hand for a couple more rounds of it, and the melody has an interesting structure when they get into it. It's kind of like an A-A-B-A-C form with 16 measure sections. In the A section, the first half is minor and bluesy, and then it gets lifting harmonies. The B section is kind of modally and has suspended sounding chords, and the C is minor and moody. After that, they go around the intro vamp for a couple rounds to set up Alterman for some improvisations, which stick on that funky eight-measure progression. Lots of rippling high-register figures, trills, chiming chords that all feel so good. They take it through all the melody sections again with some extra embellishments and glissandos from Alterman, finishing it up on some repeats of the funky opening idea. Track three could be... This is Les McCann and the Gerald Wilson Orchestra... 1964 Pacific Jazz label. It's a 32 measure ballad melody with an AABA structure, has tasty pauses in the fifth measure of the A section, and Alterman makes it fancy with trills and fun phrasing, some really nice ringing notes on the B section. His improvisations are light, trickling, rippling, and teasing, but build up after in dynamic two hand figures. It's a great hesitated descending line on the way. And back to the melody with trills and great tremolos. He's really great at, you know, these uh, tremolos on the piano. You hear them all throughout this album. It makes it really sing. It's got some phrasing fun and a return to lightness on the B section into the final A for a placid ending with a tasty rising line. Oh, a really great one. Track four, The Straggler, also with uh, Gerald Wilson Orchestra uh, from the same album. Uh, this is a great one. AABA form bluesy melody with little rolls, choppy phrases, and tremolos. There's a cool minor chord switch in the fourth measure of the A section. Then the B section goes to the minor, and Alterman makes this kind of cool descending left-hand line. And then the A section in the end is extended to 12 measures that sets things up with a great solo break. And Alterman really builds this one up chorus after chorus. All kinds of cool things in here. Left hand stabbing notes, trills, skittering, falling lines, more of those pretty trickles. He had some fun runs on the final time around when they get back to the melody too. And they repeat the final four measures going round into a playful bouncing ending with the bass. Track five, Bo J. Poo Poo. That's the <laughs> title of the whole album from 1965 on Limelight Records. Starts out with some low open fifth piano chords for four measures. Bass and drums join in for another round, and then one more with some right hand piano added on top. The melody's funky and bluesy but quirky. Seems to be 20 measures, but with a meter change up for a measure after the half step modulation that you hear in the ninth bar. Uh, they go around it again. Then there's an eight measure bridge section with percussive chords, drum fills, and a break into improvised piano. It's a lot of fun with little break sections, and Alterman really mixes things up with rhythmic piano ideas, tumbling figures, and bluesy skittering phrases. A big tumbling line brings it back to the intro idea and through the melody sections two more times, and Chess Rex cymbal work, skittering snare work, and well-placed clicks are tasty all the way through this tune. Track six, Samia, and this is from an album McCann did with uh, Eddie Harris, 1971, Second Movement. 
a solo sustained piano with cymbals and toms joining in for an intro to this pretty softly flowing tune. The bass is in on the B section of the melody and the drums give it a great light beat with toms and clicks. It's kind of an AABA structure but 34 measures with some different chords building up to the B modulation and the final A section has two extra measures with some nice chord movement in it as well. Alterman keeps it dreamy and light and shows off more legato playing with a soft touch on ringing notes in his improvisations going round and round. He brings it down really soft for a final run through the melody with some flowing ripples on the way and a gentle ending over bowed bass from Smith. Track 7, Ruby Jubilation. This is from 1977 album Music Let's Me Be. Starts out with a light drum and percussion intro. The tune has kind of a light New Orleans feel to the rhythm, I thought, with the bouncy one-note repeated bass lines. The melody has contrasting 16-measure sections that have charming little rising lines working into funky or syncopated ideas. They keep it light and tasty with variations and then vamp around for Chesarek to get some drum improv work in. And they give it a super soft and fun final run through the melody sections. Track 8, It's You. This is from rather late album 2003, Vibrations. And apparently, McKen sings on the original, but I couldn't find it anywhere on streaming. I'm interested to hear it. I'm going to keep looking for it. It's got an easy R&B gospel tinged feel to it with a heartbeat-like bass line in spots. The melody is very happy sounding and the structure is interesting. There's a 10-measure opening section with cute little chimes added by Alterman, then an 8-measure melody section. You think it's going to repeat, but then it gets a sudden modulation and some interesting <laughs> dreamy chords uh, that take it to a longer kind of 10-measure length section before it gets back to the R&B kind of flow from the, that we heard in the beginning. Uh, Alterman keeps it light and rhythmic with little rolling phrases in his improvisations. They took it through the melody sections again and ended up with the vamping getting lighter and lighter. Track 9, Doreen Don't Cry. This is from Les McCann Limited Group, Pretty Lady 1961. This is a soft and lovely ballad. It's really slow, and the melody section seems to be mainly an eight-measure idea that gets repeated. After two rounds, there's a little two-measure bridge or transition before Alterman gets going again on the melody phrase in lots of light and lovely variations, high and light almost disappearing, and then with rippling left-hand accompaniment. Great subtle stuff with a nice touch. They ended up on a couple rounds of that transition section chord pattern that we heard just once before. Track 10, Big Jim. It's originally from 1960's Les McCann Limited in San Francisco. The drums beat this shuffling tune in. It's two rounds of rhythmic chords at the 12-bar blues. Then Alterman's off playing the blues over Smith's steady walking bass, and he never runs out of ideas for both hands. Listen to some of the cool left-hand lines he does under the trilling figures, along with other low left-hand stabbing notes tossed in. Smith gets a bluesy and bendy bass solo, too, in this one, and they shuffle it through the melody again, cycling around on the last four bars with a tasty solo piano break right before the ending. We're going to end up with track 11, Don't Forget to Love Yourself. It's a tune we heard before and a piece that was composed by both McCann and Alterman together. And this was on the Upside of Down, the live recording from 2020. It's a very pretty solo piano ballad. And 
In a sense, it's a bit more relaxed in tempo than the live version, although some of Alterman's embellishments seem to have more zip in them. It gets into a steady tempo about midway for a bit, and it hints at that kind of thing at once more near the ending, but mostly a lovely tune showing off flowing phrasing on a very pretty melody. And that wraps it up. You just have to like Joe Alterman's playing with an absorption of all the great early piano styles and infectious rhythms. And this is a good selection of Les McCann's compositions, and Alterman sounds very inspired to play them. The blues is always there, but there are interesting twists in his tunes with healthy doses of gospel and R&B as well. It's guaranteed to put a smile on your face. Yeah, I think so too. Um, I kind of think when you hear a Joe Alterman album, you, you know what it's going to sound like. You know oh, it's yeah. going to feel good. Um, some, someone once compared um, the, the, this type of thing to like a bowl of ramen. You just know it's going to be good. You know what it's going to taste like. No problem. And uh, that is certainly uh, the case here. It swings. It feels good. It feels familiar. There aren't going to be any like stylistic surprises, but you do get all that great soloing as well. He's yeah. got a lot of ideas. You know, he's, yeah, he never I really do enjoy ideas. his playing. I never get tired of listening to this, really. It's just always fresh and mm. it's you know rhythmically alive and it just sounds really great. I, I can't really add much to that, but I thought... Um, uh, yeah, you know, I'm going to have to pick this up somehow. I don't know. I like yeah. the album. I like to have a copy of this one. The tunes, you know, listening in detail, you know, they all sound bluesy or gospely, but they do have nice little compositional twists in them that make them unique and uh, nice chord changes and spots too. So they're kind of inspiring to uh, play, I would imagine. Hmm. All right. Another great recording to get you in the groove. We've got uh, one of our favorite combinations, uh, organ and sax, in this case, Barry Sax, from organist Chris Hazelton, After Dark. It's on Cellar Live. It came out August 11th. Now, Chris Hazelton's an organist from Kansas City. He started playing bass and piano, but when he encountered the Hammond organ, he knew that that was the instrument he was destined to play. He studied with Kansas City organist Everett Devan, and then he, later on he spent the years 2007 to 2009 playing in New York City, studying with Dr. Lonnie Smith. His flagship ensemble is called The Boogaloo 7. <laughs> you can check out Soul Jazz Fridays. That's a live recording from 2016 on streaming. I'll admit that I'll listen to anything with the word boogaloo, boogaloo. in it. Yeah, we love boogaloo. <laughs> and for more than 10 years, uh, Chris was also the organist at the historic Centennial United Methodist Church in Kansas City, a church that was once uh, home to Count Basie and Charlie Parker. So he's got the uh, religious side covered and also the, uh, you know, the jazzy and bluesy side as well. And he plays bass guitar in uh, soul ensemble, The Freedom Affair as well. He says of this album, uh, here's the idea behind the title and the concept. Quote, I've always been somewhat of a night owl. I suppose it comes with the territory of being a jazz musician. We feel at home in dimly lit, hazy settings during the wee small hours of the morning. Something about nighttime has always been enchanting to me. There are endless possibilities and one never knows what could happen before daybreak. Hmm. That's one idea. The other idea is another quote here. Inspired by the darkness of the pandemic, so with no real game plan in place, I booked a weekend in the studio and hired friends that I knew could deliver the feeling I was looking for. I've always had an affinity for the sound of a baritone sax in front of the organ trio, going all the way back to George Benson's first two albums with Ronnie Kuber and Lonnie Smith. So you've got that dark sound, 
and the idea of dark, but the album notes end with, but after dark, there is always light. And this is going to put you in a light mood, I think. Chris Hazleton on the Hammond B3 organ, Brett Jackson on Barry Sax, Jamie Anderson guitar, John Kizlermut, Kizlermut, I think hmm. that's how you pronounce it, on drums, and Pat Conway on conga on three tracks. Of course, on Cellar Wife, the executive producer, Corey Weeds, and produced by Chris Hazleton. All right, track one, Amsterdam After Dark, which is the title track from saxophonist George Coleman's 1979 album. It's off to a groovy start with a steady clicky drum beat, congas and alternating organ chords over cool syncopated organ bass pedal figures. It's an A-B-A-B melody with Jackson's husky Barry sax taking the A sections and Anderson's guitar joining in on the B sections in unison. The second time around, Jackson takes it up higher and then he solos first as well with rhythmic figures, double time lines, gets down low, but all sounding exciting and smooth. Anderson follows with a guitar solo agile and with a nice snap in his lines, some double stops and nice tensions toward the end. Hazleton's last with nice melodic ideas in his relaxed solo lines and a great organ tone. They take it through the melody again and groove out with the percussion finishing up with some repeated phrases of the sax first melody line and a fun ending when the organ and guitar join in. Track two, Easy Talk, tuned by organist Hank Marr. And looking up the history of it, it seems to have come out in 1964 as a 45 single. And it's also on the recording live at the Club 502 from the same year. It's a good feeling tune. Barry Sachs and guitar take the riffy melody together. It's an A-B-A-B, again, a 32 measure form. In the A section, rising and falling syncopated organ chord and drum hits are under the melody, and it gets swinging with walking bass on the organ on the first half of the B sections. Anderson solos first on guitar with nice double stops and bends, playful triplets getting down low. Jackson has a full-throated berry solo with swinging melodic licks and snappy double time, and Hazleton's organ solo really swings on this one with short percussive left-hand hits and builds to a big climax with with a change of tone and high punchy lines and chords. Track three, Jammin' at the Kirk. This is by Kerry Strayer, a Kansas City Barry Sax player. It's from a 2007 album, Play It Where It Lays. So skittering and drums and syncopated organ chord hits make an eight measure intro to this boppy tune. It's got a 32 measure melody with happy fast lines that the guitar and Barry take in unison. Jackson goes first with fluid bop lines on the Barry and Kizlermut switches up from brushes to sticks on the ride cymbals to push things along. Anderson's guitar solo is fluid, has some cool hesitated phrases along the way and Hazleton uses a clean and percussive tone for the start of his solo and then he changes up to a more shimmering tone on, with the drawbar settings and some playful glisses and choppy chords and then a big finish with another tone change to huge percussive chords. He's really good at picking really tasty sounds throughout the album to match the mood. Then there's another drum solo uh, before a final bop through the melody. Track four, Night Lights by Jerry Mulligan, the great baritone saxophonist, and he's got a uh, 1963 recording of the same title. A slow ballad started rubato by just Jackson and Hazleton, for the first A section of the melody, great baritone on the subtle melancholy melody. Kizlermut joins in with a soft, steady drum beat on the repeat, 
with soft guitar figures from Anderson. It swells with more intensity on the B section with organ chords below, and then comes back down. Jackson's Barry solo slowly builds in intensity into some really gleaming organ from Hazelton to an exploding climax before Jackson joins back in on the B section while things are still at a high energy level. They bring it back soft to finish out the last section with a dreamy ending. It's a very passionate and tasty version of this tune. Track five, one of the funkiest pianists of all time, Bobby Timmons, his mm. 1960 Soul Time album. The tune is so tired. Clicky drums and Pat Conway's congas are back for this one. They get a beat going over dark organ bass and chords for the intro. Barry and organ take the funky minor blues melody with uh, Anderson playing guitar chords. It's a 32 measure AABA tune with a switch up to swing on the B section. Jackson digs in with some greasy berry sax digging low with some swinging in between the sections as well. Hazelton works through some funky and bluesy ideas and swinging percussive chords. They take a round for Conway to get some conga going and then into a little drum solo for Kizilermut before taking it through the melody again and vamping on for some final soft sax improv to a fade out. Track six, The Groove Merchant by Jerome Richardson saxon flute player there's a 1968 album of this title but also you can hear a later version 1997's jazz station runway a great fun tune hazelton gets around the 16 measure tune twice uh, solo on the organ to get things started out everyone is in and guitar and sax take another uh, round together over a shuffling beat on the drums jackson gets a gutsy Barry sax solo, and Anderson has a playful solo with cool chords, and Hazelton rips out bluesy and gospel licks into some big shimmering chords, and he takes the uh, first time around the melody on organ, again before guitar and sax are back on the repeat to the coda with a big amen cadence at the end. Hmm. Uh, nice fun version of this tune. When the recording wraps up with Watch What Happens, a Michelle Legrand tune from 1964. They get a great groove going with an intro of rising and falling organ chords. Hazelton takes the melody with solid rim clicks from Kizilmut and choppy rhythm guitar from Anderson. Jackson joins in on the rising and falling figures built around the chords. And I like how they all work together on the lines at the ends of phrases through the whole tune. Anderson solos first with lots of tasty double stops and speedy triplet figures. Jackson has great melodic ideas and double time licks. Hazelton has a really clean tone start with bouncy lines, but then makes it shimmer into big chords and once more around the melody and a fun slowed finish. So you got great meat and potatoes jazz here with great grooves and fun solos. It's an interesting selection of tunes with some familiar ones, but deeper dives for the Hank Marr and Carrie Strayer tunes. Barry Sachs and organ go together really well, and I like how they split up the leads with guitar, organ, and sax. Hazelton always chooses great tones for the organ, and his bass lines down below are very cool too. And you'll be in a good mood any time of day if you give this After Dark recording a listen. Yeah, this after like Joe Alterman and then this, boy, <laughs> that's, that's a big, uh, good feeling night. This is a very high spirited album. And I want to just take a minute to say how amazing it is that how many, there's so many Hammond organ players out there these days that we've been hearing. This yeah. is really surprising to me because I just didn't think the instrument was so like current. And yet there are so many recordings with it yeah. on it now as we're finding out. 
by doing this podcast. I'm just amazed at that. Uh, this is a really great album too. This isn't okay. It's not really pushing genres forward, like you said. It's meat and potatoes, bringing back some good tunes, offering some new ones, and then some uh, obscure ones that we should probably know better. I find them all very satisfying. The organist really gives us like the full Leslie at uh, points during his solos. I really enjoyed that. And the addition of baritone sax on this album only made it more appealing to, I guess, both of us, really, to yeah. me. Because I love that instrument's throaty sound, especially at the bottom of its range. Uh, the guitar had a lot of uh, good solo ideas, and I liked his clean tone. A lot of the solos keep close to the melody, probably because the chords demand it, as in Groove Merchant. It's an album of all of my favorite things, so what's not to like? Yeah. By the way, I'd like, you know, there was a movie called The Full Monty, where a bunch of guys oh, yeah. like kind of form a dance troupe. Some organist should release an album called The Full Leslie. <laughs> I think that'd be a great album title. It so I'm giving that out yeah. to you, jazz organist. <laughs> the Full right? Leslie. You don't need to, uh, you know, credit me, and we'll even uh, talk about it on the podcast. So there you go. I'm kind of fascinated by the... Uh... Hammond organ and uh, me too. You know, I mean, I have some time once in a while. I read about it and I look at sort of videos of you know getting inside of it. And apparently, uh, what's his name, Jim Alfredson, takes those all apart and repairs them for churches and things. It mm. looks really scary. All the uh, mechanics inside there. And uh, interestingly, I guess that uh, Hammond was not a fan of the Leslie speaker when oh, uh, really? it first got associated that's, with his organ. But. You know, that's just not surprising because you know, yeah. things like that always happen. Well, I guess it was originally invented as a lesser expensive option for churches that couldn't afford, yeah. you know, a pipe organ. Right. And uh, But then, man, it took on a whole life of its own as a jazz and blues kind of instrument. So, Yeah, one of the things about the Hammond organ is it's the way it can completely change its character. You know, it can just yeah. go from that kind of churchy holy organ sound to something more dirty and it's yeah. you know it's kind of i think it kind of reflects people that way really you kind of see both different sides of them you know the instrument has many sides to it maybe it seems like there's so many recordings because whenever i find one a new i just can't <laughs> just resist put it on right I, yeah. I know i've got a load of them i was kind of collecting them and there weren't i didn't notice that many but now i've got so many just from this year and last <laughs> year i mean yeah it's really crazy. I know, and now I'm looking at them saying, oh, which one should I listen to? You know, right. you, you, yeah. you, you kind of get uh, frozen by too much choice. Sometimes right. there's like no choice and then you have too much choice. You don't know which one to listen to. So yeah. it's like. Yeah, it's a, mm. quite a tough predicament. <laughs> yeah. To yeah. All right, we're going to end up uh, this week's uh, selections with a vocal recording. Yeah. Yes, I picked some vocals. And this is by Vanessa Perea. Her recording, This Is The Moment, it's on La Reserve Records. It just came out August 11th. Vanessa Perea is the daughter of a Colombian father and a Cuban mom, born in Glenridge, New Jersey, but she's now based out of New York. She sang in school and church choirs. She took piano lessons and classical voice lessons, and she attended New Jersey City University, where she studied with jazz vocalist Rosanna Vitro and operatic soprano Donna Connolly. Before graduating with a BA in music education, she's performed with George Cables, Duane Berno, Pasquale Grasso, Adam Birnbaum, a great pianist who you're going to hear on this recording, Joe Magnarelli, trumpet player, Emmett Cohen, and Alex Smith. She's got three previous albums, Playdate 2019, Home Life 2021, and that one, I think, yeah, that's a project with her husband, trombonist Robert 
Edwards. And it had to be you, 2022, and now this one, 2023. So she's on a roll with recordings here. It starts out with the cool album cover, which features her in a kind of retro kind of outfit, lying on a retro piece of furniture. Yeah. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, it's cool. And going to be a a dig into some good retro tunes here. Before we get to those, uh, the band, Adam Birnbaum on piano, Neil Miner on bass, Aaron Kimmel on drums. Uh, The album was engineered and mixed by David Stoller and mastered by Dave Darlington. All right. The title track, This Is The Moment, Frederick Hollander, Leo Robin. It comes from the 1948 film That Lady in Ermine, sung by mm. Betty Grable. Did she really uh, sing it? Yeah, I guess so. That's what oh, it says okay. when I looked it up. Well, Kimmel gets things going with a sparse drum rhythm, and Perea comes in just over the drums for two verses. Here you'll get a taste of the many of the good qualities of her voice exposed in the open, a great sense of pitch. Here singing with no harmonic backing, clear enunciation, good swing, nice phrasing with just a touch of hesitation in spots. The piano and bass come in and they go around the verses again. She takes some more liberties here with pitch this time and having a swinging good time to the final building piano chords. It's a nice opener short at just over Mm. two minutes. Well, then let's go to bebop mode with Anthropology, Charlie Parker's tune. Back to 1945. I think the lyrics to this were written by Leonard Feather. Probably later, right? Yeah, yeah, later. Yeah, Yeah. I thought. A tasty intro on this one from Birnbaum. Bebop and rhythm changes make up this tune. Of course, uh, I like how Birnbaum plays the melody under Perea's vocals on the A section in both hands. So you're getting that uh, doubling up, tripling up, actually. She gives us our first scat solo here. Sounds good. Getting down into her lowest range in spots. Birnbaum is an exciting pianist and gives a tasty solo here. Uh, Voice and piano trade fours with drums for a round before another run through the melody and a happy high note ending. Yeah, I want to underline that, that the piano playing on this album is really great. I actually mentioned it at the end, too. It really caught my ear really quickly. Steals your ear. He's a yeah. really good accompanist, but it comes to that line, you know, where yeah. you don't want the accompanist to steal the show. I don't think he does. No, he doesn't. But, when he, but he really shines balance. when he gets his solos, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. They're really yeah. interesting. Yeah, he's not crowding her territory at all. No, no. Not at all. He's tasty. Yeah. Track three, It Amazes Me, Cy Coleman and Karen Lynn Lay, uh, 1958. Tony Bennett had a good version of this tune. Birnbaum gives a tasty intro and works around the rubato vocal intro to this ballad. Perea sounds warm in her lower register with nice phrasing and vibrato. Bass and drums are in at the slow tempo. Tasty piano trickles behind the vocals. She gets the dynamics just right, making a climax on the I'm the one who's worthy wise line. But she holds it back, saving it up for later. Uh, Birnbaum Mm -hmm. has a really interesting solo of chiming descending lines, delicate swinging lines as well. Perea is back for the end of the verse and really lets her voice bloom on the final Amazes Me lyric uh, and some nice final piano touches as well. In this track, I wrote the note, she's got the stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> yeah, really nice. Track four, Sometimes I'm Happy, Vincent Yeomans, Clifford Gray, Irving Caesar, 1927. Wow, imagine mm. that, almost 100 years old now. For the stage production of Hit the Deck, snappy piano and bass figures in the intro, 
and the start of the melody released nicely into swinging phrases. Piraeus swings it nicely with a bit of a growl and then gets uh, four bar scat exchanges with burn bum. Uh, then Minor and Kimmel get bass and drum exchanges before another sing through the verse with fun final repeats. It's a fun tune. Track five. Okay, let's get a little Spanish medley here. Se te olvida la mentira and sabor a mi. These are by Alvaro Carrillo, the Mexican composer. Uh, the first tune's from around 1965, and Alan Bernstein made an English version of the lyrics here. It kind of became a jazz standard. Sinatra did a version of it. And let's see, yes, Sinatra and Duke Ellington album, I think. Sabor a mi, Taste of Me. Uh, these are both Bolero tunes. This one's earlier, 1959. And uh, this one's been recorded by a lot of people uh, looking up the song database. Uh, Cuban jazz pianist Babel Valdez, the K-pop boy group, I don't even know yeah. my K-pop and the Los Lobos uh, band, the rock band? version of it. Yeah, so I can see that, but I, I can't believe a, a, a K-pop band yeah, did that's it what too? it says. I don't know. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, a light Latin beat, and we get treated to Perez's voice in Spanish. There's a pause at about a minute and forty-five seconds, and then we transition to the sabor a mi tune. Great phrasing. And those rolling R's feel so good. You can't mm. do that in English. So right. it's one of the charms of uh, Spanish. You know, but they they used to do it in English, too. It sounded really artificial, yeah. like an opera. It just sounded really weird. Birnbaum has another tasty solo with cool rhythmic figures and two-hand synced lines. And Prey is back for the pre-chorus and chorus, really floating the sabor a mi. It's right where her voice resonates best. Uh, this sounds great. And the lyrics to this tune are really uh, the chorus. I wish I had kept up <laughs> Spanish because I haven't used it in, in years. So I don't, um, uh, you know, I'd like to be able to hear things more when I'm listening to Spanish music. But the chorus, pasaran mas de mil años, muchos mas. Yo no sé si tenga amor la eternidad, pero haya tal como aquí, en la boca llevares sabor a mí. More than a thousand years will pass, many more. I don't know if eternity has love, but there, just like here, in your mouth, you'll taste of me. Wow. That's great. That's quite uh, intimate. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Back to English then for track six. Something Happens to Me, Marvin Fisher and Jack Siegel. I think the first version of this was done by Nat King Cole. 1959. It's a cool syncopated opening line and a round of piano from Birnbaum with bluesy touches. The melody covers a pretty wide vocal range and Perea sings it with a good swing and slight hesitation. Another great piano solo from Birnbaum on this one and Perea returns for another enthusiastic round and they give it a little vamp and bluesy touch to the ending. Track 7, I'm Lost by Otis René, first recorded again by I think the Nat King Cole Trio, March 1943, and also Benny Carter, right around that time too, I think 1944. A dotted rhythm bass line and hi-hat get this going, and Perea comes in on top with the cute lyrics. She gives the I am lost lyrics some attractive pitch bending, and Birnbaum joins in from the B section of the melody and gets a solo with the drums and bass dropping out at the start. Really great effect there. And Perea returns for the bridge and final section and a charming hanging vocal ending. Track eight, I Could Write a Book. 
It's a show tune from the 1940 Rogers and Hart musical Pal Joey. Birnbaum gives this one an infectious two-hand riff for an intro that continues under the vocals in the A sections of the melody. Gets a medium swing rhythm. Perea takes a scat solo on this one, uh, ending up with Charlie Parker's Cool Blues lick. That was a nice little touch. Birnbaum gets a tasty piano solo. Perea returns for another round with a swinging lilt and final vocalizations at the end of the tune. And I also want to mention on this one, uh, there's a lot of scatting on this album, by the way, and I'll mention that in my uh, notes at the end, but she has some pretty cool sounds in her scatting in this particular track, like kind of a a rubba-dubba-dubba kind of sound. (laughs) I really enjoyed some of the syllables in this particular track. I could write a book, yeah. Track nine, The Shadow of Your Smile, tuned by Johnny Mandel. Uh, Lyrics by Paul Francis Webster from the 1965 movie The Sandpiper. And Tony Bennett had a kind of a hit with this one as well. Uh, rubato intro over bowed bass and piano ripples. Big pause before the main tune start. And then slow rhythm with a click to it. This one takes her down low and up high in her range. But she pulls off really nice phrasing and vibrato on this famous melody. Uh, Birnbaum's piano solo trickles out into falling chiming lines. Empire returns for a really good climax and soft ending that unwinds with just the uh, trio behind her. You know, this is a song you've heard a million times, yeah. uh, but uh, I really thought, you know, she did a, a very heartfelt uh, version of it. I've heard, uh, I did some research into this song. It's from the movie The Sandpiper. Yeah. And it was sung in the movie by an uncredited chorus. Oh. throughout the movie. So it wasn't a solo voice. I always associate right. the song with a solo voice, and I can't even imagine. I, I don't think I'd like these. <laughs> yeah, that sounds kind of generic, doesn't I'm it? I'm just yeah. so mm-hmm. used to these different voices singing this right. song. Track 10, Supposin'. Now will go way back to 1929. Paul Deneker and Andy Razov, recorded by Bob Herring and his orchestra. There's tons and tons of versions of this song since it's so old that have been recorded. But a bouncing bass gets it started here, and Perea comes in with a verse just over the bass. Then piano and drums are in for another round, and she embellishes things tastily. Minor gets a bass solo on this one, and Perea's back for the final section with some repeat exchanges with Minor to end it. Track 11, Then I'll Be Tired of You. This is uh, music by Arthur Schwartz, lyrics by E.Y. Harburg. Uh, recorded by Freddie Martin and his orchestra, 1934. Lots of versions of this, uh, including a good one by Ella Fitzgerald. It's a gentle ballad, just starting with uh, piano and vocals. And bass and drums join in. And Minor has a soft melodic bass solo on this one, too. Uh, yeah, really gentle treatment that I enjoyed. And the recording's going to end up with Lover Come Back to Me uh, by Sigmund Romberg. And lyrics by Oscar Hammerstein for the Broadway show The New Moon uh, goes back to 1928 when it was published. And famous version by Billie Holiday as well. Rubato piano and vocal opening. Then it gets going for a rendition with lots of rhythmic change-ups by the trio from pulses to swing. And Perea surfs over them gracefully with the lyrics... Uh, the driving swing treatment goes on for a speedy piano solo from Birnbaum, and Kimmel gets a drum solo mixing things up around the toms. Prey is back to finish it off with a final verse with a halftime slowdown ending. And that wraps it up. I found this a really pleasing vocal recording. Perea conveys a real sense of joy and honesty through the lyrics. 
you feel good and you feel like, you know, she's really feeling the meaning behind the words and the tunes. Great pitch, ease of delivery, phrasing and enunciation are all exceptional and with good swing and some cool scat too. <laughs> Interesting yeah. syllables there. Uh, the song selection is a mix of familiar standards and a little digging for some older gems that we don't hear too often. Plus a little bebop with Charlie Parker and a Spanish medley to round things out. Uh, great tight trio to back her here. Birnbaum stands out, constantly drawing your ear with classy accompaniment and creative solos. I don't pick a lot of vocal recordings because they have to the voice needs to be of a quality that I want to hear and kind of warms to me personally. And I feel her voice does that very much. So I, I enjoyed this recording. I'll be listening to it uh, a lot over the summer, I think. We should probably post a list on some on our website of all the voices that Russ doesn't like to listen to. I, I actually know who they are. Yeah, it's, it's a well-kept secret yes. here. in the. <laughs> you can tell by all the voices that haven't been on the podcast. That's right. <laughs> Anyway, I can give you my short list of favorite singers. Maybe the top is Diana Reeves. Oh, she's great. Yeah. I do like Samara Joy, Catherine Russell. And Catherine Russell. She's, yeah. I thought she'd be at the top. She's near the yeah, top of mine like or at too. the top of mine. Cassandra so, yeah. Wilson. I like right. Dee Dee Bridgewater. I mean, these are all, you know, current singers. Um, right. Yeah. And of course, yeah, we, we love the old singers as well. Yes, I do. We don't hear enough male vocalists, you know, um, either yeah. too. So I wish we had some more male vocals to choose from but yeah. i generally like kurt elling sometimes i like him I, sometimes uh, i don't like the things he chooses but i like well, his yeah, voice that's it, yeah. but the voice is i really yeah. do like the voice he does he goes into a lot of styles and so he's adventurous that way and but i think that's good but yeah i don't always like the result i'm kind of you know yeah and i'm not sure what's going on with gregory porter if he's going more like or they're marketing him more in an r&b kind of uh Thing. He's kind of got a foot in both worlds, um, but I think he, he can I do just I hope he's got control over his career and not some uh, guy who's going to, you know, going to try to make him a big star or anything yeah. like that. I think he'd yeah. find a way on his own. He's, it's a great appealing voice. Yeah, but anyway, let me voice. talk about this album. Um, yeah. The arrangements are straightforward. Everything is like proper song length. There's not much in the way of soloing, although, I, like we said, when the piano solos, it really caught my ear everyone gets their two cents in i liked Pereira's um appealing smooth voice it's got color to it very suitable for jazz and for me she scats well and she's got rhythmic flair but more than that she's got really inventive syllable or sounds let's say syllable sounds in her in her scatting i thought she was kind of unique in the, in the sounds that she chose at times. You're really going to have to listen to the album to yeah. understand what I'm listening to. That's That really caught my ear. And I thought she varied her vocal approach enough to make the entire album interesting. I've heard other albums where you hear a singer who's using the same approach for every uh, song. And that's not the case here. I mean, she's got a lot of subtlety in her voice, yeah. too. I really enjoyed this. Enjoyable album all the way through, I'd say. Yeah. So check out those uh, other releases, and we'll look forward to uh, what she does those, next. I wonder if those are all uh, retro album covers, too. I'm going to have to check those out. Yeah, check them out. But, yeah, uh, yeah a voice that I really warmed up to, and yeah. uh, I'm going to look forward to hearing more of in the future. And that's it. That wraps up episode 128. It's a lot of yeah. uh, good music. Easy Breezy and Jazz, and uh, some yeah. great Ravel, and amazing harpsichord, and challenging Core work <laughs> Good, there. Yeah, we can't call it contemporary anymore, sadly, from yeah. Sadia Ho. Right. But um, we get more more music from her probably coming out. The problem is when when composers die, 
<laughs> their music stops being recorded for 20 years yeah. for some reason. I don't understand why that happens. Yeah. And then they sort of make some, somebody manages to get some recording project mm. together. I'm missing uh, the last works of Christopher Rouse, which don't seem to be. Uh, yeah, what happened to that? Being there recorded. Was a, well, he a died. Big rush. Yeah, and then nobody. <laughs> and then yeah, nobody wants and now to nobody's record recording because I guess he's not there saying, "Hey, play my work." You know. Mm. That's know, true. But yeah, I don't. I don't like that because I. You know, you gotta. There are a lot of works of his that aren't recorded yet either that I'd still like to hear. Now they're probably not even being performed. So right. I don't even know. But now Kaya Sadiaho, so we'll have to see if yeah, we get, see there, there are tons of recordings of her works already, though. So right. Thanks as always to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. Remember to check out the Same Difference Jazz Standard podcast. There'll be a link there coming up when we end. You get a little promo clip, so stay on and listen to that. What do we got coming up uh, next week in classical, Mike? What do we got? We got Mozart Piano Quartets. And this is going to be interesting for me because these are works, I don't, they're big works and I don't really mm. know them as that well because there are some other works that I really love that I listen to again and again right. by Mozart. But Mozart's always great. Anyway, we've got a composer I love, Nikolai Medner, contemporary of Rachmaninoff. And uh, his gigantic uh, third violin sonata is on that. Mm. And we've got, uh, oh, we've got a, <laughs> we've, we've got a contemporary violin concerto which um, has a Buddhist title, Dependent Arising, and uh, has heavy metal elements in it. Wow. How are we going to pass that up? We're not. We're going to wow. bring that to you next week, because I have to hear that. Shredding up on the violin, huh? Yeah, we've, we've heard enough shredding. but you yeah. know, It turns out classical music, though, and uh, heavy metal actually do have a lot in common. So yeah. <laughs> not, It's not volume isn't one of those things, but uh, <laughs> in some cases it is. Hmm. I don't know. All right, in jazz, I've got fresh and unborn releases next week. Okay. We've got uh, steeplechase guitarist John Hart and more organ because Brian Charette is with him. So, and we got sax in the mix too. Uh, it's kind of a subtle and fresh sounding album called Resonance. Uh, we've got a new positone release by up-and-coming tenor saxophonist Willie Morris that just came out on the 18th and uh, that we've heard him before on a, as a sideman and now he's a leader and there's some intense sax playing there and we've got a early release preview of the new Terrell Stafford recording great trumpet player and that's not going to come out until September 8th but I've already been listening to it and so you can listen to us talk about it and uh, make you want to hear it when it comes out. But I want to get that out. The next episode after that is uh, going to be our guest episode with Same Difference Guys. So if I wait until after that, it'll be too late. So I want yeah. to pump up this uh, preview release with something we got a little bit early to take advantage of it. And then we'll put up links to that once it becomes available. For all the other music that we just mentioned, if you want to uh, get a jump on listening shortly after this episode's released, We'll have the playlist up on Deezer and also a link to it from our Facebook page as well. All right. And that's uh, that's it for another week. I've um, spoken a lot on this podcast, but I felt like those albums really deserved quite an unpacking. Yeah. I, I really thought the Sadio Ho needed to be unpacked a lot. And also the uh, Italian harpsichord works because they're not yeah. so um, well known. That was really exciting. Otherwise, have an easy breezy week. 
And yeah. we'll be back with some more new music next week in episode 129. So until then, keep listening, and we'll see you again next time. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you.